Smoothie King asks, what's that sound? That's the sound of hearts popping out of your eyes when you see Smoothie King's all-new Smoothie Bowls. These power pack beauties are just waiting to be spooned. Our Smoothie Bowls start with acai or pitaya and are handcrafted with fresh toppings like sliced bananas, sweet berries, ripe mangoes, crunchy purely Elizabeth granola, and a savory peanut butter drizzle. Mmm, that's the sound of a smoothie bowl being made fresh, just for you. The new Smoothie Bowls menu, only at Smoothie King. Hello, and welcome to Ness and Dorma. In this episode, we're looking back to the World Cup of 1982 and a legendary match between West Germany and France. If you know the game, you're in for an absolute treat. And if you don't know the game, you're also in for an absolute treat. I'm joined today by Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello, Gary. And Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi, Gary. And um, Rob, I'll come to you first. Uh, why why does this match matter? Yeah, so we've decided to treat our listeners by doing West Germany 1, Austria 0. Um, no, sorry. Yeah, we are doing one of two all-time great games in this tournament. Um, the semi-final between West Germany and France, uh, which, spoiler alert, uh, was a 3-0 draw with West Germany winning on penalties. Um, and it's just, it's just one of the greatest games of football history, really. So... Uh, I mean, you often hear the phrase, the game had everything, and that's clearly not true. It's like understandable hyperbole, but I feel like this came almost as close as any game can. Um, six goals, the first ever penalty shootout in the World Cup, so it was historic. Possibly the most notorious foul in football history. Um, some amazing near misses, which I'd forgotten about. Um, yeah, just the kind of game that, you know, could be enjoyed by Johan Cruyff or Danny Dyer, which is pretty rare. Um, but I think... The best way of putting it is when Michel Platini, who played a key part in the game, he calls it my most beautiful game, which I thought was interesting given obviously that France lost, but also that he played in a a similarly classic semi-final in Euro 84 when they beat Portugal 3-2 and he scored a last-minute winner. But anyway, he said, slightly pretentiously, but I kind of agree with him, what happened in those two hours encapsulated all the sentiments of life itself. No film or play could ever recapture so many contradictions and emotions. It was complete, so strong. It was fabulous. Uh, yeah, can't put it much better than that, really. You absolutely can't. Mike? Um, well, I'm not sure I can put it much better than that either. <laughs> um, yeah, for all the reasons Rob said, I mean, this is, you know, one of the greatest World Cup games of all time, certainly. One of the greatest football matches of all time when you consider the, you know, the context and everything like that. Um, and, yeah, made history, you know, World Cup's first penalty Shootout. It was also the first game in the World Cup for 12 years where there was a knockout game on the way to the final. So in 74 and 78, they'd done these group stages to get to the uh, the final. So it was, it was a return to proper, you know, jeopardy knockout football mm. um, before the final itself, which was great. And yeah, the way the match unfolds, it's just this, it's got all these kind of operatic layers to it it's uh it, and it's that that makes it makes it feel like more than a football match and i think the legacy of it as well the, the scar this left on france on the kind of soul of the country as a, <laughs> as, a, as a, like a football nation i think was quite significant so this group of players 
they're involved in three of oh, the French players. Uh, they're involved in three of the greatest games ever. So this one, uh, they beat Portugal in a European Championship semi-final two years later, 3-2 in extra time, which was an epic. And then the great game with Brazil at the 86 World Cup, uh, where they win on penalties and it almost comes full circle. It almost, you know, avenges what happens in Seville. But I still, I still think there's a part of them that never quite got over this game. And as brilliant as they were after, I don't think they ever kind of quite dared to be as, you know, as attacking or as, quite as adventurous as they were in this World Cup or in this game. So three days before this game, I think it's three days before this game, uh, Brazil beat Italy at the 82 World Cup. You know, very famous game, possibly, possibly an even better game. Uh, Italy beat Brazil, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Mate, oh, sorry. You're, um, you're, sorry. Just, you're living in the You can't let it go world. even now. But... No, no. <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, sorry. Italy beat Italy Brazil. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, the uh, you know, the Rossi hat-trick. And there's yeah. a few Brazil players. I think Socrates and Zico have referred to it as the day football died. Well, that's the day football died. This game in Seville three days later is the, the day football gets its grave pissed on. Because, you know, it's... <laughs> You know, and France, you know, are arguably an equally beautiful team to Brazil just get beaten in what feel like, you know, incredibly unjust and harsh uh, circumstances. And it, and, think, and it's Italy and West Germany that go on to play the final. I think those, the contrast is really interesting, isn't it? It kind of it was painted as evil versus good, really. And there is an element of that. There's a huge clash of styles. But actually, it's slightly unfair to West Germany, who play a hell of a lot of good football in this game and are the equals of France. I mean, there's a nice quote from Pierre Lebarski, who was probably their best player. Um, we had played one of the two best games in the tournament and it was very good publicity for German football, or it would have been. And kind of the Schumacher thing, which obviously we'll come to and talk about for ages, overshadows. And also the earlier stuff when they kind of combine with Austria to put Algeria out the group stages. Those are the legacies of this tournament for West Germany. And I do feel it's a bit harsh because they play some really, really good football in this game. And it's not, the result itself isn't unjust. I mean, the Schumacher stuff with Batisson is one of the great injustices. But on the actual game, I think it was pretty even. It could have gone either way, really. Yeah, I, I spoke to my brother a couple of days ago about this and, and, he rather pithily said, oh, we all so wanted France to win and Patini was just fantastic. Who knew he'd turn out to be a complete twat? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do, you I, remember, do you remember where you watched it, Gary? Well, I watched it in the as I was reminded because my memory is somewhat hazy, but that might suggest that there were some beers in, in hand. As a, in my parents' back room with my father and my two brothers, I would guess. And uh, I was 19 at the time, and I was in my recently converted uh, back room of my parents' house. Um, I'd just uh, left college, having had a less than... A uh, pleasing experience doing mathematics, which was far too hard. And I'd started work at Littlewoods in um, the mail order buying office in Liverpool. I was the one scouser in 1982 who got a job in Liverpool. And um, so I was, I was sort of easing my way into full-time work for the first time in my life. We were in my parents' back room and we were all 100% behind the uh, the heroes as against the villains, who were already villains because of the Austria debacle, but also because they were Germany. And when you're 19, what do you do? You know, you you you, you have your villains, and you 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 don't examine them too too much. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, I was um, I was in that back room. We were all behind France, and we were aware that it was that this really, really mattered. It was a clash of styles. It was a clash of cultures. It was all those cliches rolled into one. And then you get that feeling, and I'm sure you got it when we watched the match back again. You get the feeling that we're in the middle of a classic here. This is as good as they said it was going to be. And... All of that sort of uh, came through to us. And then there is, as you rightly point out with the correct metaphor, Rob, it was an, an operatic match with an operatic uh, conclusion. I, I, I can't um, take credit for that. That was Mike's line. <laughs> right, was it Mike's? <laughs> well, well, Mike, it really was. And, and so uh, that's, that's where I was. I was a, a 19-year-old and, um, I, I, you know, it, was, it, it cemented. It cemented that the World Cup as you know a, a absolute cornerstone in my life. Earlier, I had watched the '78 World Cup, um, but they, that was from Argentina. It was on sometimes at very late at night and things like that. So, how old had I been in '78? I was 15 or something, and I remember the '74 World Cup um, going round to my uncle's house watching it on his colour telly because we didn't have a colour telly then. That's how old I am. Um, but this was this was the World Cup that. It was for the generation before me, it was 1970. I think for my generation, it was 1982. And to a large extent, it's this match plus Marco Tardelli running to the camera. Um, Mike, what were you doing in, in 82? Well, this will be quick because I can't remember this at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would have been four and a half, or just over four and a half years old. And um, I've got no memory at all of this, the 82. World Cup. Um, not, I mean, I mean, sometimes you trick yourself. You think you've got these kind of imposed memories because I've seen so much of it. And I have this with like the Falcons War as well. I mean, I think I got a sense that something big was happening, but I didn't know what it was. But because I've read Adrian Mole and things like that, I've, I've kind of imposed it in my own brain that, oh yeah, I remember the Falcons and all that <laughs> unfolding. But it's actually Adrian Mole that's remembering it and not uh, and Sue Townsend and not me. Um, so I don't remember it at all. I mean, my kind of formative memories sort of kick in the first big thing I can remember is like the miners strike and in terms of sport it's like Whiteside in the FA Cup final and the, the, the Blackpool final in the snooker I can't remember um, Whiteside in the FA Cup final at all no memory <laughs> whatsoever yeah Go on, so I, I don't remember it but um I got very into the 86 World Cup and I remember it just this the 82 World Cup just kept getting back referenced all the time because it was the most recent one and, you know, you had a lot of the same players playing in it and stuff, but without, you know, a, a YouTube or a Wikipedia to kind of go and immediately find out what it was about. It's, it's, it's a kind of thing you slowly put together in your head over time and from the, uh, you know, the sparse bits of uh, footage of it you would see on television. I think it's one of the things we find interesting doing Ness and Dormer and um, Rob and I do a do a 80s and 90s cricket show as well is being able to disentangle the real memories from the acquired memories mm. and through YouTube or watching documentaries or reading books and, and so on and I can't <laughs> very good Rob I can't um, I can't uh, disentangle them at all these days um i think it just sort of piles one on the other but i think that adds a a kind of layer of richness particularly when you go back to you know what academics might call primary research when you watch the actual thing from start to finish um mm. you you do get 
a lot of gaps filled in and there are and we'll come to them later things that surprise us things that we've forgotten or half remembered uh, that that come up and i think one of the the interesting elements certainly uh, that i've found so far in in this format uh, that we're we're doing for our world cup episodes is is revisiting these these games in their entirety just just how much appears to be brand new despite mm. the fact that i would say oh yeah of course one of the great games yeah i could i could i could give you a running commentary straight out of my head i couldn't because so much more happened than i can either remember or remember the memories thereof so to speak um rob what's what's your view on that that sort of liminal space, as the academics might say, between memory of the event and memory of the recounting of the event, either through documentaries or through reading and so on. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, <clears throat> I, look at Mike, I can't remember watching this game, but even games I do remember, I think it's such a mix now of um, imposed memories. And I think that's even more because we're exposed to so many resources these days, whether it's yeah. a great number of books, certainly documentary youtube etc so it's it's quite actually quite hard to remember how you felt at a specific time kind of makes me regret not not keeping a diary um just for various things really obviously for life generally but i i do wonder sometimes how even just sort of, you know later on in this we're going to do some italian 90 stuff and trying to remember how i felt about england at the time it's really really difficult it's all influenced i'm sure by what's happened subsequently how italian 90 has been romanticized etc um I, I suspect i was probably slagging england off like everyone else for most of the group stages but in my head i wasn't at all um yeah even this game this game it feels like it's always been in my life but it, it hasn't I'm, i don't know if i watched it um i don't know when i would have first seen it in, I, I don't know when i would have first seen it in full but even before that i would feel like it's a game i know well even though i literally hadn't seen that the entire game i think it's just how our brains work these days um because it's such an overload of information yeah, I think it's very difficult to to distinguish between the kind of pure memories and otherwise. Mike, sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I just put my hand up to talk. Uh, one one interesting thing, actually, the first time I saw an extended chunk of highlights of this game was, I, I'm sure it was on Eurosport, ahead of the 2002 uh, World Cup. It was like just a little 20-minute thing. And the way it had been cut was almost like to make it look like France had been... You know, that's interesting. And lots of the German chances that are in the full game aren't there. So it's almost like, you know, the we're, we're also withholding to these, you know, YouTube directors, yeah. you know, the cut they decide to take when they put these little montages. You get that on sometimes match. on the end of season videos for clubs, don't you? They'll just show highlights like, I don't know, like a Man United beat Liverpool 1-0. And it will show yeah. the goal. They won't show Liverpool hit Liverpool like eight times. <laughs> it's very rose-tinted, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. There's a, there's a lovely quote from David Lean, the esteemed British film director who probably raised himself to his full height and announced that creation takes place on the cutting room floor. Uh, he was talking about movies, but he could be talking about anything. And yeah. living as we do, swimming in a sea of visual information, each of which has been cut, even if the cut is we're going to show you the whole lot, then we have to be mindful of, of that. And, uh, yeah, I think that uh, there can be angles taken. And part of what we try and do here is bring 
different perspectives from our own experiences and indeed from other media. Um, and so, you know, Rob, I think you've already referred to David Lacey's splendid report. There was a tremendous one that you sent us of uh, Hugh McIlvany uh, <laughs> as well. And the 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 um, written media supplement the, the visuals. There's, they don't substitute for it, but they, they provide something different. And we'll be drawing on that in our Nessendorma World Cup episodes to come as well. Um, so um, a little bit of backstory, perhaps. Uh, Rob, do you want to start on, on how, you know, as... as David Byrne says in the Talking Heads song, my God, how did we get here? So how did, you've already referred to it as uh, as the as the first of the, the kind of knockout games before the final, but it was a, it was a strange kind of structure um, compared to what we've become used to in the World Cup with a group stage and then a second group stage. So um, yeah. just fill in a bit of that uh, mosaic of backstory. Yeah, so the second group stage had been in place since 1970. But the difference, as Mike said, is that it went straight to the final. This time it went to the semis. So it went from, is this the first 2014 World Cup? Is that right? Yeah. And it goes down to 12 and four groups of three from which semifinalists. But anyway, so West Germany were in a group with Algeria, Austria, and Chile. Um, and they infamously lost the first game to Algeria. I think before the game, one of the players had said something like, we'll dedicate the seventh goal to the w- our wives and the eighth goal to our dogs. Yeah. And they lost 2-1. Algeria were a brilliant team. Anyway, the way it panned out was that because the fixtures weren't played at the same time, the last group games, was Germany and Austria went into their last game knowing a 1-0 win for Germany would put them both through and put Algeria out. So you can, you'll probably remember what happened. What was it called? The disgrace of Hihon or something. Mm. Um, but anyway, West Germany won 1-0. Um, I did actually watch that game in full a few years ago, which was for work. Not yeah, not for players, obviously. It wasn't quite as bad as I thought, but it was still. I mean, it was still a a um, a kind of unspoken pact. But I find it interesting that other teams have done it, like Ireland and Holland did it in 1990, and it's nowhere near as infamous. Um, But anyway, that's by the by. Second group stage was West Germany, England, Spain, and West Germany. I forget the order. I think they beat Spain two 0 first, and then drew with England. Is that right? Uh, 2-1 they beat Spain, yeah. Oh, okay. So England had to then beat um, Spain 2-0 to go through, and they drew 0-0, Keegan missed chance and so on. So that's how West Germany got to semis. But what's interesting, I'll I'll let Mike deal with France, but what's interesting is talking about David Lacey reading his preview is that West Germany were strongish favourites for this game, even though they hadn't been especially convincing and obviously lost to Algeria and weren't particularly well-liked. France were the opposite. I think they were absolutely loved for the way they played in the second group stage. But at that stage, they weren't necessarily seen as the kind of most convincing proposition. Um, yeah. But yeah, Mike, do you want to run through France's route to the semis? Yeah. So France came into this um, off the back of having been uh, a bit unlucky at the 1978 World Cup. They drew a very difficult group in that uh, with Argentina and Italy and played really well in all their games, but got knocked out. But under uh, Hidalgo, the manager, and you know with Quatini and, and forming this this kind of new team around him, they qualified for this World Cup. They got out of one of the tightest uh, qualifying groups in European history, actually, and had to win uh, their final qualifying game in Paris against uh, the Netherlands, in which Quatini scored two goals. I think one of which was a brilliant free kick, and it's 
it's kind of like a baton passing moment really between you know the Dutch team from the 70s it's it's almost like the French team mm. you know take over we will be the beautiful European team um for the next decade so yeah their tournament uh 27 seconds into it they went one nil down to England from a a long throw routine where uh Terry Butcher flicked it on to Brian Robson and they lost that game 3-1 but then they bounced back they beat uh, Kuwait 4-1 with a famous game where the uh, Kuwaiti emissary uh, came down onto the pitch to protest at one of the uh, goals that had been scored and actually had it chalked off Um, that is bonkers yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, especially as it was perfectly legitimate as well yeah perfectly legitimate goal and uh yeah, rich people just clicking their fingers and getting what they want. What, what, what yeah. world? <laughs> um, and yeah, and then they drew uh, one all with uh, Czechoslovakia in the final group game. Very, very close, sort of like tetchy game just to didn't, get... Didn't Amaros clear off the line in the last minute or something? Cleared off the line in the very last minute, yeah. Um, and they just chopped, forgotten about. Yeah, they chopped and changed their team uh, quite a lot in that... Um, in that group stage and um, they were still trying to find their identity really. But in the second round, they, they really found it. So they played really well against Austria, uh, beat them one nil with a free kick by Bernard Gengini. And then against Northern Ireland, put in a great performance. It's what Hidalgo called the best performance in his, you know, first six years of management. Uh, they beat them four one, but it, I mean, it was a bit of a procession really. Jerez scored twice, uh, Dominic Rosto scored twice. And it was the first time that um, Jean Tigana, uh, Michel Platini and Alain Jerez started a game together in that midfield. So that's three corners of what would, would come to be known. So who wasn't starting Who wasn't starting before then? Well, they were in and out. I think it was mostly... Um, Tigana. Yeah, uh, Tigana, yeah. Who that's hadn't um, I didn't know started. That. And he, yeah, he came into the team, uh, yeah, quite late, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they won 4-1 and that um, progressed them through to the semi-finals. But they, they, all the way through, they had this kind of, I guess, dark horse element about them. And they felt quite, because they were such an attacking side, because they had, you know, in, the, in that midfield, um, you know, the way they would line up against West Germany. They started with um, Jerez, Platini, Tigana, Bernard Gengini, who's a very waif-like attacking midfielder, and Dominic Rosto and DDS Six up front, they were kind of converted wingers. So it's this very kind of fluid, really attacking formation. But there was this kind of feeling about them that they were quite soft-centred. And, you know, Germany being, or West Germany being you know, a bit of a power team, I think a lot of people just expected them just to run through France in this semi-final. Yeah, which they kind of did for the first 20 minutes. Mm. One thing on France's tactics, I was trying to work them out, and it's a really interesting system. I mean, I think Platini is basically playing what we would now call a false nine. See some Rosto, almost like split strikers coming from out mm. to in a lot. Um, it's a re- I mean, it's really interesting because we think of the magic square from 84 once Luis Fernandez is part of it. But I think it's slightly different here, unless it's simply that Platini has complete freedom <clears> and was going where he wanted. And it was still, you know, the square, but with Gengini instead of Fernandez. But the amount of times he is the central striker, I found really interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in watching the game that this is a great side, but not as great as it could be. That there is, I mean, some of it may be just confirmation bias, but there is a sense that it might be missing one or two elements to it. And 
obviously Fernandez coming in for Gengini um, does stiffen that midfield a bit and stop some of that first half where the Germans were kind of running all over them as much as through them. Uh, and then they do they do get a grip. But you can see how Fernandez terrier like qualities would, would improve the side two years later in their extraordinary um, run to the 84 uh, Euros, uh, which they won. I mean, at, at the time, the things that went against France and made them underdogs is that Part of it is just one of those things that France were not a team that wins World yeah, Cups. You know, exactly. World Cups are won by Brazil, West Germany, and Italy, and what's They hadn't been England. to a final, had they? They had never no. been to a final. So you're right. No. It's so it's so easy to look back now and think of France as the superpower that they are, but you're absolutely right. They weren't then. They were kind of where, like Mike said, where the Netherlands had been in the 70s, really. Yeah. And also where Spain were before they started yes, exactly. uh, winning tournaments. It was the same kind of thing. You just expected them to fall over. And the, the other side of it is, or one other element of it, and I think it does come through in the match, is that Cis and Rochto are not world-class forwards by any means at all. So you, you're looking at where the goals are going to come from. Um, Cis, I think, was better than Rochto. Rochto looks you? like the... Yeah, I think Rochto looks like the bad boyfriend that your year 11 daughter brings back from Marseille <laughs> after an exchange visit. And I mean, sometimes he seems to play like that as well. He seemed to me indisciplined and he was whinging a bit to the referee and, and so on. But what he definitely doesn't look like is scoring a goal. And I, I you know, we're, we're still in, well, I was just energetic. quickly asking, what was Cease like at Villa? Was he underwhelming? When he joined Villa, I I literally can't remember. So I suggest <laughs> yeah. it probably yes. was, yeah. But they they just they just neither of them look like the kind of players that that they would be in the present day. They don't look like a Ronaldo or a yeah. Salah coming off the wing and scoring goals. They look like a, a Ronaldo and Salah who instead of coming off the wing drifts back out wide again and tries to put a cross into Gires, who's five foot five. It is um, interesting how similar it was with 98 uh, when they didn't have a proper centre forward. Um, because here in this team, who else would have played up for Bruno Ballon quite a bit in 86? Yeah, Soler. Soler. Oh, Gerard Soler, yeah. Yeah. But I actually quite like Rochester. I thought he was a de- I, you're right, he's like certainly not world class, but I thought he was a decent player. I always remember this amazing run against Brazil in that game that Mike mentioned. Yeah. I thought Cease was a bit flaky, but maybe maybe I'm um imposing that because he goes on to miss a penalty, I don't know. Um but I agree with you, they were they certainly weren't world class as compared to I mean, I was looking at Germany, you don't think of Klaus Fischer much apart from overhead kicks, but his record is really good. It's like, I think it's like 32 and 48 or something. Um, and Lipbarski looked a fantastic player who was just kind of emerging. And yeah, I suppose, that, I suppose, yeah, that, that was their weak spot if they did have one. I mean, we're throwing it forward a little bit, but no, neither Rushto nor Cease, nor really Platini, who tended to stay a bit, uh, a bit further back and join the attacks later, arriving late into the attack. None of them are making the run that Rummenigge makes to get that uh, that goal that brings it back to three two. No. Yeah, and if you've got point. if you've got two forwards, neither of whom are going to attack the near post for a cross like that, then you're going to struggle to score goals. And I think we had this when we we looked at the French team. Yes, there's Platini. Yes, there's a fantastic free kicks, but. Are they going to score enough goals when they come up against the big sides? And I think that's why they they went into the 
the match as, as second favourites, even though I think 11 against 11, I think all 11 French players have a case of being better than their opposite number, even though Germany were a good side. And it was no walkover either. But at 3-1, I agree with you, Rob, when you look at the match in the whole, because Rummenigge coming on as a substitute does make such a difference. But at 3-1 as a whole, 3-1 felt a fair score at what, sort of halfway through the first period of extra time. It's Mm. just that that Germany wrestled the advantage back. And as soon as they do wrestle the advantage back, that grim realisation that we've all felt, I think, as England fans and as fans of our own clubs, is that once one goal comes, you just know there's a second on the way. Yeah, it perpetuates itself, that kind of comeback, doesn't it? We've seen it with other teams, even even different generation, different set of players, but it's in the minds of everyone that this is what happens. You know, I think Chris Freddy wrote that the kind of comeback they've been dining out on since the 1954 final. It's so true. You think of England in 1970, even the final in 74, they came from behind. Um, well, I was going to say, just, we should say Rubenicke was on the bench just because of injury, obviously. Oh, yeah. He was their best player. And I think, I don't know if he was European Football of the Year at the time, but he certainly had been. He was um, then, yeah, he went back to back. And his, that, that a, little. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say that little cameo he does. Yeah, I mean, you can, cut, you can see why he's the European football oh, yeah. of the year. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Just, what's it, 20 odd minutes? And he just basically yeah. flips the game on its head. But, yeah. yeah. And the, the, quality, the quality of his runs compared to Rosto and Sisu are not helped by the haircuts, yeah. it has to be said. But they do seem to run a little like headless chickens, where you've got this sort of uh, godlike. Huge, well, it's not that huge, but godlike figure of the blonde hair saying, I'm going to run there, and the ball sort of comes to him uh, over and over again. Um, well, right, uh, Rosto, I mean, it, it reminds me a lot of um, Anthony Martial, like capable of brilliant things, but you just want to go over and give him a shake. It's just a World Cup yeah. semi final. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, rouse yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Well, let's come to the day itself um, because it was a it was a, a unusual day. Um, certainly, one that that younger listeners will find somewhat surprising. Um, Rob, what happened earlier that day? Yeah, so <clears throat> earlier that day there was another World Cup semi final. Um, <laughs> Italy beat Poland two 0 Paolo Rossi scored both. Kind of quite a comfortable win. I think that game kicked off. I think five fifteen UK time. The second kicks off at eight pm. So had that gone to extra time and penalties, the first game, you almost might have an overlap of World Cup semi-finals, which obviously these days wouldn't be allowed to happen at all. I think the last time the semis were played on the same think was 86. Um, but it just seems so quaint now, doesn't it? Rather than, yes. yeah, I mean, the, with all the kind of commercial aspects these days, yeah. It just seems, think of all the millions they wasted, eh? Um, but it, yeah, I, I, one th- that's one thing I do miss, actually, is just kind of football overload. Uh, whether it was a European night, you know, there's a great, a famous one in 84 when I think there were five British teams in the semi-final all on the same day. Uh, Mike has written brilliantly about that great day in 1990 at Italy when Argentina beat Brazil and West Germany beat Holland. And I love days like that where you just have a complete overload of kind of really significant, intense football. Uh, obviously, there's football overload now, but it's more like 4pm finding a I don't know, Portuguese league game and whatever. Um, it's not quite the same, but two semi-finals in one day. Yeah. I mean, that just sounds like heaven. You, you know, what's even better than the football overload day, 
the Go day on. before the football. Day. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, you think, Christmas Eve. Yeah, I can't believe it. What we've got tomorrow. Look at this. Look at mm. this. You know, so would, uh, would semi-finals 66, would they have been the same day then? Same time, actually. Yeah, same Were they? Same, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, same that's 90, brilliant. 1970 as well, I think. That's fantastic. So then you go to 74 and 78 and there aren't semis. Yeah. Well, so yeah. 1970, they played, they played all four quarterfinals at midday on the same day. Oh, my God. So Gordon, Gordon Banks, who was in his hotel room recovering from uh, Montezuma's Revenge, um, they were showing live Mexico and Italy. So he, he had literally no idea what was going on in the oh my god the England West Germany game, and it That's came amazing. on tape. It came on tape delay as soon as the Mexico Italy game finished. Yeah. So he was watching it. England were two 0 up, and then all the distraught England players came back. Is that true? That's yeah, yeah, and, and and he had no, he had literally no idea what had, um, what had happened. He's like, why are you all so sad? <laughs> that reminds me, actually, that ba- apparently Batiston came round. We'll talk about, obviously, about Batiston issue, but he came round at 3-1 yeah. in the dressing room. So the poor guy, like, there was a bit of a silver lining for about four minutes yeah. when he kept, when he regained consciousness. Well, uh, there's, yeah. there's a, a famous quote. I mean, it's too good to be true. It must be apocryphal. When um, <laughs> Muhammad Ali uh, beat, believe it or not, Richard Dunn, who was the British heavyweight champion. <laughs> and uh, Richard Dunn came round on a stretcher in the dressing room and apparently his first words were, did I win? <laughs> it shows you how your brain can be scrambled, I think, yeah. in, a, in a boxing ring. But, <laughs> you haven't but thought yeah, this I mean, one through, have you, Richard? Yeah, I mean, in, <laughs> even in 1989, um, and perhaps in 1990, but definitely in, in 89, um, the tragic uh, day of Hillsborough. Yeah, the semi-finals. Um, we, were, we were at Villa Park watching, yes. watching Everton. You know, the 19, were on simultaneously. 1990 was the first time because they had that great televised day of 13 yeah. goals, mm. Palace, Liverpool, <clears> and, you know, oh, yeah. So it's a good point. I'd forgotten about that. Uh, now, looking this up, I'd forgotten uh, as we as we do the other semi final because whenever you get a match as as great as iconic in the true sense of the word iconic, or rather in its its true metaphorical sense of, of iconic, although there's, there's certainly a, a kind of almost biblical quality, as say to the the match, um, then then uh, the I'd, I'd forgotten that. Italy played Poland in the other semi-final. Yeah. If you said to me, what would be the score between Italy and Poland in the semi-final? I would have said, oh, probably 2-0 with two from Rossi. And it yeah. turned out to be 2-0 <laughs> with two from Rossi. Um, extraordinary how Italy uh, went to the final on the back of, of Rossi's goals. And I think we've covered this in a in a previous um, pod, Ness uh, and Dorma. But... Um, Delivering two goals again to get Italy through to the the final, just fantastic. Yeah, he as a couple for of um, years, hadn't he? No, I'd, he'd been um, before Brazil, obviously. Yeah, yeah, before Brazil. Yeah, and he had, they, there was a sort of campaign back home to get him dropped because he had a terrible group stage. Uh, was really out of sorts. I think he only started playing for Juventus again in the either like April or May of '82 after a two-year. Enforced layoff, so it's an incredible. Um, you know, it's one of, one of those like great, unlikely, incredible World Cup stories. What happened with Rossi, but um, that semi final was kind of governed by the fact that so, uh, Zibi Boniak, who is Poland's best player, was mm. suspended and um, he got two bookings in the uh, second round group stage and was out and 
also Claudio Gentile, who would have man-marked him um, in the literal sense, in the way he did with um, Zico and Maradona. He was suspended for that game as well, but then you know, came back in for the uh, final. But um, yeah, it was this... Uh, it, it it's sort of given rise to this myth now of how to win a World Cup the way Italy won that yeah. World Cup because they yeah. started very slowly and then they they finished you know they kind of crescendoed at the end they played really well and the kind of theory it's it's not true really because no no teams win World Cups like this anymore you're more likely to play more expansive stuff in the group stages I think yeah you know when you've got the when you've got the safety net of other games and then the knockout yeah. stages are nearly always really tight. Yeah, like West Germany in 1990, actually. Mm. Nine, I think nine goals in the first two games and yeah. then kind of quiet after that. Yeah, yeah. Fran- France won it in 98. You know, they started, I think, like 3 Oh, they nil, did, didn't they? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Italy, I think, in 2006, they just kept winning 1-0, didn't they? Um, through, kept it tight. Yeah. Almost all the way. Mm. I always get a, a little bit worried when I refer to previous World Cups because I'm, I'm likely to be a decade out in my uh, in my <laughs> nailing of a team to a to a to a, a trophy. But um, we've mentioned we've mentioned uh, David Lacey's uh, reporting and and indeed Hugh McIlvany. Um It's interesting, Rob. The 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 kind of the way the on the minute reports work and then some of the later reports work. Uh, in terms of assessing the game and in terms of of looking uh, first reactions really to to those moments, um, particularly the, the the infamous Schumacher foul. Yeah, I think it's changed a lot now. Match reports were far more important then in many ways because people would have seen this game, but it's not like now when you can see pretty much every game in some form, whether it's highlights or watching the entire thing on a dodgy stream. So they were a lot more kind of factual and, yeah, and particularly also the technology wasn't there, so it would have been harder to fire reports and so on. So it is interesting to look at Lacey's on the whistle report. Uh, I mean, it's it's really well done at always. He was the master of reports. But it's interesting that he calls Schumacher's foul, um, what are the words he uses? I've got it here now, crude and then reckless. But then later with 24, I mean, he says it should have been a penalty, but it's, it's not um there's no talk of it being an absolute scandal or anything as there would be now um and but i think after 24 hours to think about it on the next morning when he files his final preview he talks about it slightly differently let me just get it see if i can find it here um and i I suppose there's just more time to reflect on things there wasn't that time on the night because um yeah he talks about uh yeah, he, by the time he talk, talks about it next day, he said he should have been punished by a penalty in ascending off um, the stiff arm tackle by Schumacher, which laid out Batistone, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. In fact, the severity of Schumacher's assault only became fully apparent when seen behind the French goal. Um, it's just interesting. Everything moved a lot more slowly in those days. By now, you would have hot takes before the penalty shootout finished. Yeah. You know? Um, it's just quite. I I find reading contemporary reports really, really interesting and really useful as well because you get they they are completely unvarnished and you get a real sense of the mood. And probably that thing. It's just interesting how incidents took a lot longer. To, I mean, I wonder Schumacher's thing would have been pretty infamous within twenty four hours of the game, but I suspect it's still grown and grown over the years. Whereas if it happened now, it would immediately become the most infamous foul in football history or the foul just, of the century or whatever. Yeah. Shall I just give a little bit of background? Because there might be unlikely 
element that there might be people who are not aware of, of this is that I'm not aware indeed of the, the context. Uh, by the way, Rob, you have that PhD in football journalism. You you just start at page one and you finish at page 130. You'd just be able to write it out, I promise you. Um, yeah, the, right. The, um, it was at a time where there weren't sweeper keepers, but there were offside traps. So there was always room in behind the defence. And the goalkeeper's job, uh, particularly the likes of Ray Clements, who was very, very good at it, yes. but there were others as well, was to come out of the box and clear the ball. But if you did not clear the ball, the absolute obligation was to take the man. There was never mm. any question that this was was one of two things. It was a foul and it was a yellow card. And often, and in my mind's eye, I've got it, I can see goalkeepers jogging back towards their goal line, nodding as they know that a yellow card or that their name is being inscribed in the book. So what happened? What happened was that you see on the television, you see from the camera side on, you see Batistón going through and then you see Tony Schumacher come out um, the ball goes past him, uh, goes past him towards the goal, and Schumacher takes the man. Mm. Sorry, Rob, you were going to... No, I was going to say, should we just give a bit of context? So it was one all after about oh. an hour. Batistón has just come on for Gengini, I think, who was injured. Gengini, yeah. In those days, you only have two subs, so Batistón would be there first of two. Anyway, Platini sprays this beautiful ball in behind. Interestingly, Germany were playing with a sweeper, Stielica, and I have no idea where he got to because an almighty... He didn't have a good head. game, did he? he no, did he not didn't, have a good and he game, missed the penalty as well. Yeah. Um, and Kautz comes across right back, doesn't get there. So, yeah, beautiful through ball, bounces up. Batistón meets it just outside the area, kind of cushions it past Schumacher, and it dribbles wide. And, of course, what happens is most people, including the ref, are following the ball because Schumacher is so late um, in whacking Batistón. Um, I mean, Schumacher says he was going for the ball, and that, I, I just do not buy that at all. I, I'd be inclined to believe other stuff he says, but I, I, the more you watch it, he cannot be going for the ball. There's too much time in between. So yeah, that's what happened anyway. He lays Batistón out. Um, he was unconscious for about half an hour, I think. Um, but we can talk about that in a bit. But yeah, just the context in the game. It was one or he'd just come on. And Schumacher also, just quickly, he'd been cruising, for, he'd been looking for trouble. There were about three or four incidents beforehand when he's kind of gratuitously landing on players or pushing them or whatever. And just before the incident, I think a ball went into the front, into the France fans behind his goal and they didn't give it back. So then a new ball was given to him by the referee and he kind of shapes to throw it into the crowd and then doesn't. So he was kind of quite coiled all night, really. Um, whether that whether that was always the case with him, I don't know. I know he was quite a spiky character, but you got, looking back, you could see signs that something was coming. I mean, Not he was that. He was definitely of the school of goalkeepers and you can see it in his play where 
the, the penalty area was his domain and yeah. anybody who came into that area was you know, seen game. as a kind of personal affront. Yeah, like a, a kind of territorial cat or something like this. And he comes for crosses, and we don't really see it these days. He comes for crosses all the way towards the penalty spot and catches mm. them and stuff like this. And, um, yeah, so on the first... On the first view, it looked like one of those incidents where a keeper has cleaned out a striker um, who who is running into the box, and you kind of think, well, that you know, that's how it happens. And Lacey's point about seeing it from behind the goal, because once you see it from behind the goal, you see the full horror of the full-scale mm. assault, and it's the kind of extreme violence, the kind of rollerball element uh, of it that that just horrifies and i remember again just kind of slack jawed at first you know i I remember thinking you know as as somebody run on the pitch here because schumacher was going at such speed as he as he comes out of his goal and he's so far away from from the ball as you say and then you think oh no it's just a keeper clearing out the striker and then you see it from behind and you know it, 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 it it if anybody here has not seen the incident. I'm sure you'll YouTube it now and pause what we're, we're saying if you haven't. But it, it is every bit as infamous as the uh, history says. It is a, it is an astonishing piece of, of, of videotape. And um, what what looks like a really bad outcome for Battistone, losing two teeth, being out for 30 minutes or so on. Uh, when you look back in retrospect, well, you know, you, you'd take that if you were the victim of this because it could have been a lot, lot worse. Mike, we've rattled on a little bit before bringing you in, but we're going we're gonna to cover it, and I know, in, in some detail perhaps later, but we've got to get it in early because it, it's, um, it's a moment of such importance in the match possibly importance in football history as well because i don't think goalkeepers were allowed to get away with it quite as badly as in the future after this and i'll just say another thing you're right rob in in saying that the reaction in the press came later but the reaction of the crowd was instant there's whistling from the word go from the moment Mm. and there's no big screens here the crowd had Mm. one look at this and they knew that something really bad had happened. Mm. And I think that the crowd's reaction was over and above the kind of usual sort of pantomime booing that you get if a, if a player has done something wrong. Um, mm. And I found that interesting watching the game back, that it was sustained as well. It went on for at least 20 minutes before the crowd got you know sort of fascinated by other things. Uh, so they knew what had happened. The referee didn't. And extraordinarily, the linesmen, um, who it would be in at least their peripheral vision, they didn't They didn't either, or maybe they just didn't say, sorry, Mike, I was going to bring you in, and then rattled on a bit. Go on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one interesting thing that happens about a minute before this inst- uh, incident is that uh, Schumacher and the, the French fans behind his goal, uh, they they kind of mess about throwing the ball back to him for a goal kick. And then Schumacher gets it and he, he mocks to kind of throw it back to the crowd and gets jeered for it. I'd, I'd call it horseplay, but um, that, that would imply that there's two senses of humour involved in that. But I just, I think Schumacher was just trying to round them up. I think Rob, as Rob was saying earlier, um, he, he'd had a bit of a cob on all night, really. He'd been trying to start it with a few of the French players. I think he had a clash with DDS Seeks and one with Amaros. 
and the first half where they just barged into each other after he'd um, collected the ball. And it's it's interesting what you say about how this incident would be received <laughs> now, I think. I mean, almost instantly, I think, there would be a clip of this. You know, Sky Sports News would put a clip of the foul out. And it's interesting now, I think, how these things actually affect games in the moment now. Because obviously all the fans at games, or most fans at games, have got smartphones. So if you're already starting a controversy, you know, while the game's in progress, the actual fans in the stadium are starting to pick up on this. Even if they've not got the, the you know, the benefit of replays in the stadium, they can see it on their phones. And I, th- I think this is starting to affect the mood of matches now, actually, you know, in play. But with this, I mean, yeah, it did, I, I do think the, the legend of this foul was kind of built over time really I mean in in real time I think I would have missed it as well I'm not I'm not surprised that the referee and the linesman missed it I mean you're you're naturally going to follow the um, path of the ball I think but the first replay which I think is from directly behind the goal it is shocking I mean even you know even though we know what happens um, and the actual medical sheet on Batistan is he he lost three teeth he's completely concussed two vertebrae in his spine were, were cracked I think yeah, oh, this is a bit of a mystery around this, right? Because I think he lost two teeth. I saw an injury to his two teeth. But in 2014, in a Berlin museum, there was an exhibition that had three of Batistone's teeth, which apparently were given by a Marseille dentist. Seriously, I'm just yeah. reading. So someone paid 10,000 insurance fee to guarantee the presence of them. They got them from a Marseille dentist. It could be anyone's teeth. Yeah. That's just there are three, yeah. and Batistone mm. explicitly says two. Um, so, yeah, who knows? We might start. Start a little business that way. Yeah. I mean, so, go on, mate. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that was the, yeah, the controversy that happened around. And it, it, it kind of really cemented Germany's or West Germany's reputation as villains in this World Cup. I mean, you have to be careful when you talk about West Germany and villainy, you know, particularly being uh, British, because, you know, I often like people play other things in this into this as well, which I have nothing to to do with football. But I mean, after Algeria and, you know, after this, I mean, I agree with Rob, they they played some great football in this World Cup. Uh, We're a brilliant side. I think one of the favourites, they were the European champions, you know, coming into it. But it it did cement their kind of reputation as, as, yeah, one of the World Cup's all-time great villains. I think along with, you know, Argentina in 1990. And then again, again, in that sphere, I think you have to be careful of not, you know, lumping other parts of history into that as well. And it's, I think it's a lot to do with the character of that German team. It's a lot of very forceful personalities in that side. They've got Rummenigger and Paul Breitner and Uli Stieler, and obviously Schumacher. And when you think they didn't take Bernd Schuster to this World Cup as well, imagine, imagine throwing him into that, uh, the mix of that squad. I think they might have combusted in the, uh, in the they training have, camp. They didn't have too many self-esteem issues at day. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But it was it it's uh, it's it's such a cynical foul. I mean, it's, yeah, it's uh, so late, and it's the twist as well. The way he twists his body so that it means yeah, smacks him with his hip bone. So he's. I don't, he's, know, I don't know what's he doing because the ball. It's almost like he's forgotten that he's trying. The ball's long gone, so I don't buy for a minute he's going for the ball. Yeah, is it I, just that if you score, I'm taking you with me, kind of thing. I think it's definitely that, yeah. I think it's that kind of split-second collateral damage decision where he just... And it's also the way he, he's not even running in line with Batistón, if you look mm. back at it. He pushes off from his left foot, off to the side, and then turns his hip into Batistón's face. So he's airborne, 
and completely out of control. Batterstone's in the air as well. So Batterstone comes spinning out of it like, you know, like a helicopter yeah. in trouble. Takes one sickening Nasty, bounce off his yeah. chest and goes limp in kind of the same way that, you know, Christian Eriksen went limp yeah. uh, for different yeah. reasons in that Euros game. It's um, now I've, uh, it's quite an interesting debate about um, cause and effect in football. I, I've defended players before when they've been involved in challenges where the outcome has been horrendous, but like yeah. I don't think they've meant to do the fact. Like a recent example, you know, Pickford on Van Dyke or something. That yeah. to me is just, you know, clumsy. I don't think the intent is not to put Van Dyke out for a year. Mm. It's just, I do generally think Pickford going for the ball, he could have gone in a bit, a bit more carefully, obviously. But I think the Schumacher, that is, that's a yeah. genuine attempt to, to do another play. And when you play, you know, we've all played football, I'm sure. When you go in for things like that or for headers or where you can't see what's coming at you, you have to have a bit of faith in the other players around you and the opposition team that someone isn't going to do that to you, basically. So um, it, with, with that in mind, when with that context, I'll just say it's just horrendous, this challenge. It really is. Yeah, it's funny. Looking back, I love watching old old football violence, frankly, by which I mean tackled. <laughs> yeah. I just find it, it's such a guilty pleasure. Um, but this kind of, this does make you wince. And I don't mm. mean combination of challenge and the outcome. Probably a bit of both, because it's genuinely, you can, it's quite a sickening contact. Um and I can't think of an equivalent, really. I mean, it is the, probably the most notorious foul, partly because of the state, state of the game. But also, I can't think of anything. The, the, com- the, equivalent, the equivalent that I can think of, and we probably need Lee for the detail on this, I, I think it was 1980, England against Wales, which for a couple of years had just been festivals of violence and to get sent off in in rugby then you had to sort of indulge in Al Capone like levels of uh, (laughs) violence but I think it's Paul Ringer the Wales centre who commits a notorious foul where he he just stiff arms and I'm I'm doing this off memory now from a long time ago so if I'm traducing him I apologize but it is a notorious foul which has that same kind of ultra violence of speed plus nowhere near the ball plus intent to to injure and he was sent off after about 10 minutes which was just unheard of in rugby union at that time you know they'd be sorting themselves out in the pack as Bill McLaren would say not sending players off and that's the only one I can think of which is similar but given that we're we're going into this, and our route in was um, through uh, David Lacey. Um, I've got a, a couple of questions I'm going to come to, but the, the first one is, is dare we even consider how this would be received on social media these days, or, or it's no. just too awful, too much suppose, of a pit? To, to, I suppose how would it open. play out? So Schumacher obviously gets sent off. But does the game and what interests me is whether the game would continue. I'm not sure it would. I mean Badstone was out cold. Platini said he thought he, he had no pulse and he looked pale. Platini, I think, takes him by the hand and kind of leads yeah. him as he's being stretched off. So that that part fascinates me whether the game would continue or not and how it would play out in that sense. I mean social media would just be God Lord knows. But I suppose the other, the other thing that's interesting is it is the lack of um lack of sympathy from Schumacher, both in the moment and subsequently. So at the time, while he's being treated, which I think takes four or five minutes, Schumacher's just waiting to take his goal kick, standing on his own, sort of almost like Batistone's an inconvenience. Um, 
and then I think after the game or the next day, he was asked about it. They told him he'd lost two teeth or three or whatever. And he says, there's no compassion among professionals. Tell him I'll pay for the crowns. Yeah. Just, I mean, imagine how that would be received now. Yeah. I honestly think now there will be such pressure that, I mean, he'd be banned anyway, but he'd probably get a six-month ban for the comment, yeah. never mind the... Um, and actually, it all Badson forgave him. And I, there's a story that he was Badson's best man. I don't know if that's apocryphal or not. Um well, certainly he went to his wedding, which is a bit odd, but anyway. Yeah, I, 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 the mind boggles, frankly, of what would happen on social media. Yeah, There, would, there a... would genuinely be some people saying it's a yellow card at most and saying it in utter certainty. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think you would get a lot of um, kind of hyperbolic uh punishments and solutions to this, I think. Yeah. I the mean, ball had gone. Ball already yeah. gone. It doesn't matter. It's not even a foul. Like, I remember when, uh, you know, to go back to the the Van Dyke incident, so I can't remember which journalist it was, but saying, oh, Pickford should be banned for the same amount of time that, you know, Van yeah, Dyke is out. All that kind of um, nonsense. So it, it, would, it would be kind of staged. I'm sure Schumacher would be wheeled out by Germany's social media team straight after the game to apologise. Um I think a ban would be pretty instantaneous. If you think of things like, um, yeah. I remember Tassotti elbowing Luis Enrique in 94, yeah. uh, Suarez biting, uh, was it Chiellini? Chiellini. Kind of yeah. yeah. Um, those bans are in. I think, yeah, he would get a lengthy ban. I would fear for Charles Corver, the referee. I'm sure his career oh, would be Jesus. over, basically. Um, and actually, I, it's an interesting point on... VAR. I mean, I I loathe VAR. I've made this point several times on this uh, podcast, I think. But there are always exceptions that disprove the rule. I mean, if if I were to go back and write a couple of wrongs in football history, that this might be one of them. If you if you put it up against other sort of scandals in World Cup history, like the hand of God looks very trite, you know, compared to yeah, you know, something like this, because you know, he he could have really seriously seriously hurt Batistone permanently. And uh, well, one thing watching the incident... Apparently still has trouble with his back. Again, I don't know if yeah. that's... This is stuff from the internet, so obviously you have to be careful, but apparently... Because he did damage some vertebrae, I think. Well, it's um, so... Um, it's, you're right, he could have killed him. He genuinely yeah, could have killed yeah. him. Yeah. Even, then, even then, 40 years ago, which isn't that long, it's within our lifetimes. The way... You know, they just kind of amble on after a couple of minutes to bed. I know. Stuff. I'm not having a go at them here by any means. No, but just different times. It, it was just the times. And they stretching him off. And Pratini runs over to them and says, well, take, like, says to the, uh, the medics, well, take it easy, walk slow. You know, don't yeah, don't bump him around. You know, it's not luggage yeah. on an airplane. But, you know, you would get you would get people carried off in fireman's lifts with broken legs and things then. Yes. It's like, it's, it is, it's a completely different world. But you wonder what might have happened to Batistone in that lag time. If it, you know, if it had have been more serious, it, it could have been a lot, a lot worse than it was. Um, I, yeah, I, I have thought of the incident in football. Um, again, I haven't seen it for a number of years, and I don't think it's quite as bad. But it is of the same kind of template. Do you remember Ben Thatcher doing that foul? Yes, Pedro Mendes, the yeah. elbow. Oh, yeah. So yeah, that, I don't think it's quite as bad, but I know what no. you mean. I remember there was a huge row about that, actually. Because um, I think yeah. the way I think the scenario would play out now, uh, for what it's worth, is I think that the, obviously the medical response would be instant rather than 
this sort of ambling local put your St. John. Flag, St. Put your John flag down, mate. Yeah. The, the local St. John ambulance coming on to do a bit of uh, first aid that they had the top yeah. up of last week and, and so on. And, um, you know, again, I'm not having a pop at the at the, the medics there, that, that, but they're, they're clearly not trained in accidents and emergency. You can tell that from the word go. Um, and then again, you know, we see that, Argentine goalkeeper getting the uh, defibrillator uh, running running to the bench. I'm sure you saw that recently and throwing it into the crowd. So we haven't solved all the problems these days. But the way I, I would see it playing is that the players would be taken off mm. and then the referee would have a, a decision to make about continuing the game. And I think the game would be continued because I don't think you can disperse however many people are in the stadium. It's Seville, isn't it? So 40,000, 45,000, it's not, you know, the Bernabeu or the Camp Nou, is it? But it's a lot of people. Also, as we we saw with the the Ericsson incident in the last Euros, um, football authorities will basically will not allow an international tournament to judder to a halt yeah. because of one person's, you know, uh, health issues. Yeah, I mean, they restarted that game that night. I mean, it's, uh, it's, and that still staggers me now that they, yeah. that they put the Danish players uh, through that. I mean, I thought it's generally just, I thought that was just unbelievable. But, I, I, um, I, th- I think when you're that close to the final as well, I just think they would, they would probably, you know, take a very, you know, harsh decision and just think, well, do, you know. Do you think, because I think there will be a tremendous groundswell of, of support, the phone-ins will be absolutely alive with it, that there would be, I'm sure you're right, Rob, people saying, a bit unlucky, mistimed and all of this kind of stuff, but I think there will be an enormous groundswell for um, having Germany forfeit the uh, the match and... Um, Oh yeah, and oh, say yeah. that France to progress. You know that this is that this was something that you know the authorities need to put their foot down, and somebody will dig out a ancient statute that says that you know for reasons at the discretion of the organising committee, teams can be withdrawn or something. And I'm not saying they would necessarily be um, forfeit, but there might be. Real pressure come on the, the the DFB, is it? You know the, the the German FA to withdraw the team, and actually, given the circumstances and given the the general heat, that might be that might have be, be the solution that would that would have that would have uh, emerged is the German FA withdrawing the team from the the tournament um, in the way that you know people. Drug offences, people get banned during the Olympics and stuff like that. You say that they might already have been withdrawn off because of all the fuss that would have happened after the Austria game. Yeah, well, that's why that would have kicked off. Quite right, Seriously. quite right. Um, yeah. But as it was, it was it was the the eighties, you know, even into the the nineties. Or as you pointed out with the Christian Eriksen incident, it was um, you know pull your socks up, lads, business as usual. The, the second question I was going to ask, which we've alluded to already, really, but struck me, and we don't see all of the af- aftermath, obviously, but the, there are some German players who go over to check on Batistone, mm. but there's no German players go to Schumacher at all. No. Now, I'm, I'm not saying he's persona non grata, but there's no sense in helping him get through what must have been a, 
quite something even for someone as automaton-like as, uh, as Schumacher. Um, they just leave him alone uh, that's completely. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't thought mm. of it in that, in that way, but it's really they do, and he's just kind of idling around waiting to take his goal kick. Yeah, very interesting point. I wonder, was it, I don't know, actually. Were they were they in shock as much as as the French must have been? It, but I I would have thought that some would have gone over and just said, you know, come on, make these things happen. We've all been yeah. here before. It's it's how the game. Yeah, or even sometimes just you win, sometimes you lose. Even just what happened because a lot of them won't have seen it because they've been following the ball. Yeah, no bad something about it. But maybe maybe there was just a kind of element of shock, or maybe some players hadn't realised the severity of it and just thought it was. You know, gone down or whatever. I don't know. It's a really interesting point. But, yeah, but I'd love to ask a couple of them what they what they were thinking. People like Lebarski or um, yeah, one the Forster brothers or whoever. Yeah, because you wonder if players follow the ball in the way that sort of we do as fans, because they're often thinking about their positional sense or what's going to come next or something. Yeah, yeah. I've never played the game at any kind of standard. Never mind, uh, obviously at, at this standard, but. It's always been my view of, of cricket that players see different things to what to what uh, fans yeah. see. And you, you often get this when players become pundits. And sometimes that's more enlightening and sometimes it's less enlightening. But surely some of those defenders must have been thinking about um, Batistan running after the ball and so on and therefore were not necessarily following the ball, but making sure that they were aware of the, the positions they would need to take up uh, had the ball not run out of play. I'm not aware of reading any interviews or anything uh, about that. I mean, Mike, have you got any thoughts on this one? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know, really. I mean, I think with the the German players, I don't think they would have been maybe as aware of the severity of it because they mm. weren't they weren't crowded round the uh, Batistan and the stretcher. Um, also, how deliberate it was. Oh, yes, know, we're saying it's deliberate. I don't think they, you know, would have interpreted it in the same. Maybe they would have thought, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. He's not capable of that, or it's just an accidental one-off collision. Um, I think at that level as well. I do. There, there are. We might not understand this at the levels we play at, but you know, it is a hard and kind of cynical. Yeah, and it certainly know, was in the eighties. Like yeah. like um, Schumacher said, there's no compassion among professionals. Yeah. That comment seems quite nasty now, but actually, I suspect mm. it wasn't a million miles from the truth back then. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's a cold thing to say in the uh, mm. um, in the aftermath. Yeah, we've got um, a fellow yeah. hospital. Yeah, yeah, but they, I mean, you know, they're, they're you know they are kind of ruthless professionals that you know get into the top of their chosen. Uh, their chosen field, I suppose. So it's um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not surprised by the West German reaction. There may have been an element of shock in there as well. I don't know. I mean, the the, re- the interesting reactions are obviously the like Fred Putini and like Hidalgo. It's, it's apoplectic. I mean, he can't yeah. believe what's. And uh, then he gets waved yeah. away, doesn't he? Because he calls know, a couple yeah. of players over and then some jobs worth, and he's like, "Fuck!" <laughs> waving his hands. It's hilarious. I mean, I know it's not funny at yeah. the time, but in context, his reaction time. Like, yeah, that's the world coming and, to. Yeah, and Platini actually, who is who's very good friends with uh, Batistan, uh, seemed to take it. You know, I I think he took it personally. So as they're walking off, he's holding Batistan's hand, and he's saying something to him, which is I'm sure something like, you know, we're going to win this for you. You're yeah. going to be okay. And uh, 
and he he actually goes on one then for the next sort of like twenty minutes or so. I mean, France uh, are a better team for the, the remainder of that half, basically. And then he tries to dive for a penalty, Quatini. <laughs> He has a couple of yahoos at goal. Could he'd been pretty peripheral up to that point. I know he'd scored the penalty, but it just been kind of general play. Uh, he wasn't that that prominent, really. But uh, the, uh, you can see that. I think that after it, France tried to use that as you know fuel as motivation. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 just talking about Platini's reaction. I remember being quite moved at the time, and I still am really. But. You know, he showed real leadership in making sure that his player was carried off all the way to the touchline. And, you know, a real human touch in, in holding his hand part of that way. Clearly, he's thinking, uh, he's not hearing what I'm saying. He's he's in a, uh, a coma, essentially. But maybe he can feel the warmth of my hand. And that tenderness on a on a football field it, it it probably is still unusual but it was very very unusual for those those days to see that and mm. i i recall i think it was when seamus coleman had his leg snapped in half in that match against wales i think it was shane long did something similar with um with coleman and i remember being very um moved then and thinking god i hope i have the wherewithal or the courage if ever i'm in that situation to do what shane long did with uh seamus coleman and what platini did with patrick battiston uh there i don't know if i would actually because i think like lots of people i would just slightly recoil um from it but um i'm glad that they they did and i just because I, well, maybe because I wouldn't be able to do it myself, I'm even more, um, even more in admiration of the fact that they they took on that responsibility and they did it with such humanity. Um, there, uh, yeah, um, Schumacher, uh, he was a, a controversial figure. I think even before with his David Hasselhoff haircut and you can see he's almost prowling, isn't he? He looks like he's on the, he's on the edge uh, at all times. And he's all, if you were building a football caricature of a villain, you'd pretty much get a German player who looked like that and acted like that. But uh, <laughs> as you say, there's too much of the Piers Morgan for Uzi World copies over in, in yeah. in vilifying yeah. the Germans too too much. Um, just want to say one other thing because my my boy Jesper and I often have discussions about this when we're watching kind of match of the day and stuff. Um, he's obviously a generation, literally a generation younger than me because he's my my boy. Um, and we have a discussion about whether how to judge foul play. Uh, shall we say, because I'm of the generation and I don't know because you guys are somewhere in between where you sit on this, where the outcomes really matter, Um, where he's of the generation where looking back, especially kind of VAR incidents, he's much more in the camp of saying, well, look, he's he's gone in two-footed there or he's gone in, he's led with the elbow. It doesn't matter if the player's jumped out the way. It doesn't matter if it's been a glancing blow, um, it's still endangering the opponent. It's a red card. And I see that. But if we look at that match, there's at least a couple 
of big two-footed tackles, one by Trezor not long after. Yes. And for, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the outcome is not bad. You know, there's, 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 there's no more of those bed knobs and broomsticks like stretcher bearers coming on to, to fail to, to act quickly enough for the stricken player. But I, I'm, again, I maybe I'm veering towards Jesper's view that, that if you go in with two feet, you're getting the red card um, regardless of the outcome. But then another part of me thinks, well, outcomes do matter. If I live opposite a primary school, if you drive 22, 23 miles an hour down our street, you might get a ticket from a speed cop, but you're getting three points. If you drive at 22 or 23 miles an hour and you hit a kid in our street, you go into prison for five years. You know, it's mm. the, the, the act is the same. The outcome is what drives the, the, the penalty. And um, where, where, where do you sit on that kind of almost philosophical discussion? Because we had perfect examples, really, with the Schumacher incident and then at least two two-footed tackles that come in quick succession after. Is it, is it as much the outcome as the, as the action or is the action alone enough? Or is the outcome what, what matters? And you can almost be sent off for accidentally, um, <clears throat> accidentally uh, breaking a leg. I think more and more. I mean, Son, wasn't Son Heung-Min sent off for a, when Andre Gomez had that really horrible injury? Yeah. And yeah, actually yeah. didn't do much wrong. I mean, I can see both sides. I think with Trezor's tackle, I don't think in 1982, it sounds absurd, I don't think flying two-foot tackles were a red card offence. No, I don't days. think they were. The second one usually was, but not the first. You could have but one. I I remember a game in 2006 and Ronaldo was sent off for a flying, it was a Manchester derby, a flying tackle. I think it was on Andy Cole and he didn't make any contact. At the time, I thought it was an absurd decision. But looking back, I kind of see it now. It's difficult though because it's like the the man thing in cricket, which has been happening a bit recently. Like If it happened, you could say, well, yeah, fair enough. But there are also 50 times when it could happen and doesn't. So I I don't know. I, I... I think it depends on the nature of the tackle as well. Um, kind of how reckless, how dangerous it is potentially. You know, if someone two foot these days, if someone two foots a player and they manage to jump out of the way, I think that's probably still a red card. I'm less comfortable with the outcome influencing it like it did with Son um, and Andre Gomez. I, I'd probably be less comfortable with that. But in in a in eighty two, I do think the outcome was less less relevant. Um, I feel like they were judged generally by the standards of the time. There might be examples otherwise. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I do feel like the outcome has become more relevant now, rightly or wrongly. Oh, because I think the other way. I, I, really? I'm going the other way, yeah. I'm thinking that these days the outcome is less relevant. Do you, well, it can be both, at, though. I it can be mean. both, yeah. That's do you point. think Son, Son and Andre Gomez, let's take that example, if that happens in 82 and Andre Gomez has a sickening leg break, I don't think Son gets sent off. No, I don't think he does. No. But equally, um, I know what you mean. If if you two-foot tackle fresh air in 1982, you're not getting anything. You're not getting anything so, to play off. If you do it now, you'll probably get a red. Yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah you're but it is right. tricky. You're absolutely uh, right, Rob. It is it's tricky. And, of course, a little after the sun, there was a very similar incident with Luca Dina where he was sent off and then that was rescinded. You can't uh, avoid contradiction to these things, can no, you? you? I can't. think it's harder than ever now in an age of social media because people highlight gratuitous contradictions or irrelevant contradictions. I, I think it's impossible to avoid them now. I, I think so. Mike, where, where do you 
Stan? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because we, we deal purely in absolutes now, particularly on um, social media. And a, a lot of how you view this, I mean, you're, ne- you're never going to get a system that satisfies everyone because ev- everyone has different parameters on, you know, what they feel yeah, exactly. is acceptable as guys. You've got, the, you know, you've got the men's game kind of, you know, end of it. And then I think that there's a there's a kind of over-sanitised version of football that um, uh, some people seem to want as well. And it's like a pendulum. It's like we bounce between um, these two positions all the time. I mean, I, I wrestle with this quite a lot. I, I I think of this when I think of the phrase, you know, he's not that kind of player. Um, I think a lot of times managers say that kind of thing because it's the, it's the character of the person and, you know, you can go into challenges uh, and the outcome can be absolutely not what you intend. You know, you, you can mistime things in, in any aspect of life. You know, uh, you know, car accidents are accidents. You know, they're not deliberate, you know, attempts yeah. most of the time to, for one car to, you know, smash into another. It's just, it's just that set of circumstances. Um, that's the outcome. And I, I, I kind of, I'm a, I'm a bit bothered by the fact that, you know, if you, if you do go in for a challenge and it is mistimed, and the outcome is something as horrific as someone breaks their leg. Um, the kind of vilification where you're, you're put on the same level as someone who has gone in to deliberately hurt someone, and we, and we see those challenges. I don't think you can equate those um, two things the same. But also, I mean, but you know, there is a victim in this, and you don't want you know someone who's having their leg, well, you don't want to see like you know people having their legs broken. So it's difficult because. There is an element of risk in in life. There's an element of risk in in football when you play it that um, sometimes you can have bad consequences. Like you know, David Boost, for example. Yeah. That wasn't any any particular one one player's fault. It's just the outcome was so horrific. But I do think those kind of things are outliers. And I think the Batistone thing that's an outlier as well. I think it's um, I, can't, I can't think of an equivalent kind of challenge where it's seemed that deliberate and you know the the outcome has been that uh horrific and that you kind of have to deal with but it, it's like anything it's like you know from var to this it's a it's a judgment call and people are always going to interpret these things differently so this kind of reach for consensus and perfection in refereeing which is yeah but people seem to think technology is going to bring that but it's still human beings ultimately making the decision even yeah. if they're looking at endless replays, you know, and, and these slow down replays where every fiber twitch just becomes loaded with intent now. Mm. And you well, you kind of view it um, differently and it's not in real time. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's I, I don't have an answer to it. It's, well, it's, I guess, the kind of what the long-winded way of uh, what I'm saying. But it's it's something that needs to be debated properly. And I don't think we live in an era where you can debate things properly. So you just get hysteria and it doesn't solve anything. I think that's all very wise, Mike. And I think if the FA ever put a commission together, you should put yourself forward. Oh, leave me well out of that. (laughs) About a year later. uh, Send your views to that, Mike. Yeah. About a year later, I was about to start uh, back at college doing law. And um, as a law student, uh, that's now, what, nearly 40 years out of date, my knowledge. So there'll be people listening here who are much more up to date than than I am. But the the law draws, I'm going to suggest four borders. And I think we we see some of this. 
One of the boards is, is intentionality. And I think we can all agree that Schumacher, as you've already said, Rob, the intention is definitely to hit Battistone. Maybe it's not to knock two of his teeth out, but there is an intention to injure there, to stop him essentially at all costs. That's one line. Another line is recklessness, where you mm. see a risk and you decide to take it. And I think sometimes with two-footed tackles, that's the case. You know there's a risk with a two-footed tackle of injuring a player, but you decide that the situation or your mind is is running in that way, that you're going to run the risk of injuring, getting a, a red card in order to make the kind of two-footed challenge that we see in this match. The next level is negligence, where you should see a risk, yeah. but you don't. And this is the greyest of areas where, yeah. especially in something as fluid as a football match, where you're thinking, you know, it, it often gets referred to as the spare of the moment, where, you know, you, you're coming out and you've, you've got to make an instant decision. You know there's going to be a collision here, but I'm going to play the ball. And we all know that very often injuries come when you go half-heartedly for the ball. So you go for the ball with full with full uh, power, if you like, with all your weight, and you mistime it. And there's where the sympathy for me lies. Not with professionals who are reckless where they should, where they've seen a risk and take it, but where you've got every sympathy with the, the, the person making the foul and you're thinking it was just a bad outcome. We just... Exactly. <laughs> and then there's a, the final one, which is no fault, which is just an accident. And this is where social media, I think, is very bad because you're always going to find people on social media who will not accept that things just do happen. There are yeah. accidents that the price we pay <clears throat> for the pace for the skill, for the spectacle, is that sometimes things are going to go wrong. And um, those those four borders are what we learn as, as law students, and I, I think they're pretty good. But what I think we're moving to in football is intention and recklessness are definitely red cards these mm. days, I think. Yeah. I think well, the, yeah. the, the blurry bits of negligence. negligence where you think, you know, he's a pro, we should see that, that, that that's going to, cause an injury though you should see that you know that, that if he it, the, the classic is isn't it where a player is running through and they're kind of body checked and it's a red card for denial of a goal scoring opportunity he said well he should see that any contact there is going to bring a, a red card and he kind of thinking does he intend it you know mm. does he really see see that you know is it is it just that that he should have seen the risk and he didn't but we're not going to solve it but I think the key to it is accepting that we're not going to solve it and not yeah. have endless heated discussions yeah. trying to look for a chimera that isn't there, which are the, the hard and fast boundaries. Well, I think with um, with a reg rock two footer, that that's you know that's premeditated. That's all about increasing the force to absolute maximum. You're out of control, and you know in a lot of cases, all twelve of your studs, if you've got twelve studs, are all showing. So. If there's a bad outcome of that, I mean, that is on you if you've yeah. done that, I think. But what if there is? And that's right what if, you missed, what if you miss the man, if, if he skips out of the way? Well, I think, I think, you, go, I think you go anyway. I mean, yeah, I, think that's, well, I think that's completely fair enough. Um, yeah, well, well, I do, but I don't think he would have even 20 years ago. Definitely. No, no. Ronaldo was the first time I saw it, 2006, yeah. and I remember thinking, that's not right. And I was completely wrong in thinking that. 
I see now. But yeah, that's the first yeah. time I remember it. Well, there was one, um, I remember one in a, a Liverpool United game at Anfield where John Joe Shelby and Johnny Evans, I think, both went That's in. right. Yeah. But Shelby, Shelby, Shelby caught Evans and, and got the red card for it. I yeah. mean, really, they pro- probably probably both there have gone. Yeah, you're right. There's one, actually, there's one in an Arsenal Man United game in 94 where Ian Wright and Paul Lynch, who are great <laughs> mates, two <laughs> foot each other at the same time. And I think Wright emerges with the ball and shoots over and they're kind of laughing about it after. But they're just probably answer. openly, yeah, just openly, and they, I'm talking flying two foot tackle as well. Um, and it's not even not even an incident. No one even talks about it or yeah. anything. Just like strong challenge from right. Um, yeah, it certainly started to change in the early to mid two thousands, I suspect. But you're right. There are just it's the contradicting are unavoidable, and so are those kind of incidents. Because football for every individual, football is a game of thousands of split second decisions, isn't it? And you just mm. cannot get those all right. You can't. I think you're, you're right. There are certain things that you should now be programmed not to do like two foot someone if you do that it's on you but there are yeah. so many other things where you just cannot you can't it's not bloody exact science at all and it's close to the opposite so yeah it's really one, difficult one of the kind of modern phenomena that uh var has kind of brought upon us is uh if someone clears the ball and their foot is just following yes. through in the clearance yeah. if some if someone runs into them you know quite often the person who's kicked the ball will get sent i remember it happened in a Leeds city game a couple of years ago but it's there is an element in football as well that you've got to protect yourself. Yeah. Um, so if you're going to, you know, if you're going to run into someone who's kicking the ball like that, I, I don't see how the the person who's kicked it can get sent off because you're basically you're saying then you can't raise your foot at all. So, well, yeah. How do you how do you kick the ball with any? No. Yeah. Exactly. Any There's a complete then? difference between the kind of thing you're talking about and what Gaza did to Gary Parker when he kind of <sighs> rakes the ball and then plant his studs in his windpipe that but you're right there's a complete difference between that and someone who's just following through naturally yeah but that's um, that's that's where it comes down to you know you judge the incident you don't you don't judge the freeze frame of the incident because that can look yeah. very very different it's, yeah. a really, well, it's, it's a really difficult thing to resolve yeah. in fact it's impossible to resolve like you I, said. I know i know there are fans of other clubs who would say i'm simply stating a fact when i say graham sharp would have been sent off in every match but i will <laughs> add to that um Graham Sharp would have been sent off in every match because he would always run across a fullback or a defender playing the ball, who would often then kick a six-foot Scotsman at uh, full tilt and would have the consequences of, I think, Newton's second law of motion in that the the leg would instantly go backwards and they'd be rolling over in pain. But it's interesting. What what Mike's talking about? It was never a foul. It was never a foul. But I think Mike's talking about the other way around, where it's the defender now who is yeah. getting penalised for the follow-through on the... Because str- you're right, we've all seen the one where the striker runs across and the defender goes down and they get booked. But actually, now, I think I think it happened to Liam Cooper, Leeds against City, for example. That was it, yeah. yeah that's the yeah. one I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, well, the defender clears it and their natural follow-through takes them into a player. Yeah. I mean, it was quite a bad one on Jesus by Cooper, whether it was a red card, I, I can't remember, to be honest. But, um, well, but yeah, the whole thing is just years, so messy. Mason Holgate got a red last year for following through uh, too high. And, of course, once you go to the slow motion, you go to the freeze frame, you know, that the, the foot is out at sort of parallel to the ground. But in yeah. real time, he's kicked the ball quite hard and yeah. <laughs> he's got him on the follow through. Um, but consensus was, and this is the danger of social media, consensus was that Holgate should have gone. But often, you know, as we know, the, the voices that, uh, the partisan voices can dominate social media. So it's a, it's an absolute minefield. One question on the Battiston incident. I'm not talking about law. I'm talking about what you think. 
do you think it matters in terms of a potential penalty that he's already taken the shot and missed? Ah, Mike, what's your view first? Because I, I have fairly fixed views having discussed this at some length. Uh, well, so the, in other words, she, what Schumacher does, you know, you might almost say fair enough red card, but ultimately it doesn't affect the play. There's another argument that it does affect the play because Batston sees a bullet train coming towards him. Yeah. But, well, but, that's, yeah. yeah. But this is one of football's great grey areas, this. So, I mean, this happened in the Arsenal-United yeah. game a few weeks ago. I think it was Malassia on um, Bakayo Saka. Like sliding in to block a shot and missing, but then taking yeah. the player after. But the player's got the shot in. So it's almost like, well, well you got your shot away. Yeah. You know, it's like double jeopardy or something. Well, you're yeah, not, yeah. you know, you don't get another go. Um, I don't know. I just think as, as the... It's, it's not the fact that it's gone wide. It's just that it's the point of contact, bang. Yeah. He's kind of, he, he's hitting basically. I mean, I don't, well, I'm not sure, was it in the area or was it just outside? Yes, no, by the time that he takes a shot outside the area, but by yeah. the time Schumacher hits him, he's in the area, which also, that also reflects how late Schumacher was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say, or at the very least, a free kick right on the edge of the area, maybe penalty if that was, uh, yeah, you know, if it was inside. I, uh, yeah, I, I would apply that logic. I suppose there are also, logic there are also level, levels, I suppose, depending on the nature of the offence. But there was a game, um, Man United at Leeds in 2001, yeah. and a corner was cleared, and Bartis kicked Ian Hart. The ball had mm. long gone, like, and a penalty was given, and funnily enough, Bart saved it, Bartis saved it from Hart. But yeah, that's another example where the ball, the ball wasn't dead, but the ball wasn't live either. You know, it was completely mm. off the ball. So I suppose I think it's fair enough, particularly well, when it's that egregious. But anyway, Gary, what do you think? Yeah, well, my, my view, and again, I don't want to bring you into the room in which I'm talking now, but Jesper no. and I watch Match of the Day and we, we talk about these things. And we, we've reached a consensus, really, and it was me who moved on the consensus having listened to his arguments. And his argument was quite a straightforward one, and it's illustrated well by the Battiston and Schumacher thing. He, he would say that if Schumacher is not there running at him and in the process of making the foul, Battiston does not uh, touch the ball sort of passed in that half-hearted yeah. shot. It's bat- It's Schumacher's that. actions which lead to the shot and therefore yeah. it's part of the same process and therefore yes. it's a foul, it's a penalty, it's a red card. And I, I don't know where the end of that lies because it feels a little bit like interfering with play. The end I've of that got, is uh, if they're not interfering uh, with play, what are they doing on the field? Every player influences another player's action but to me that's a really clear example if Schumacher is not making that foul if Schumacher makes other decisions yeah Battiston uh, does not well he doesn't have the same shot he may still yeah. miss but he doesn't have the same shot and therefore okay. to me 100% penalty what about this one the Arsenal Spurs a couple of years ago during Covid I think it was Lacazette who was through on goal Davinson Sanchez came across slid to block the shot I think Lacazette fresh aired it and then was taken out by Sanchez in his follow-through. Now, if Lacazette connects as he intends to, Sanchez blocks the shot, and therefore it becomes a ball and man tackling is fine. It's only because Lacazette misses a shot that Sanchez is punished and takes him out. Penalty was given. Um, and I just find that one interesting. I suppose ultimately, if you go to ground, you're responsible, blah, blah, blah. But I thought it was interesting that he made a kind of tackle in good faith, if you like, and would it, and it would have been a perfectly good tackle had Lacazette not Messed yeah. it up, but I get. I suppose. I suppose that's just a variation on players he's, who see yeah. a defender's leg and run over it. I guess. Yeah, he's got 
in his peripheral vision or even kind of spidey senses we know that yeah. top class players in all sports are made of different stuff to the rest of us and if sanchez is not doing that then perhaps martial does not take the shot or certainly take the shot in the same way yeah. so i for me it's it's part of a what might in mathematics be referred to as a kind of system uh, of, yeah. of two bodies moving together and i think you have to take the the actions and the consequences yeah. as part of that system. And it becomes a system when Sanchez begins his yes. intention to yeah, tackle. Yeah. 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 Until yeah. then they're separate, separate people like the goalkeeper is a separate person. Yes. You know, if, 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 but once the goalkeeper then comes out and, you know, this is, this is pretty much the case with goalkeepers and in rare instances where they're not, protected as much as um, the other players. If the if the player knocks the ball past the goalkeeper, it goes out of play and the goalkeeper slides in and takes the player's legs, I think 99 times out of 100, that's now a penalty. Yeah, I think it is. If it was a defender, though, yeah. if you said, oh, he's got the shot away, oh, the ball's out of play or something. But with a goalkeeper, it's almost always given as a penalty. And I think it's a bit greyer when it's a defender, when, of course, the reality of it is it should be the same whether it's a goalkeeper doing it or a defender. Yeah, it's, in, it's a really interesting subject. I'm not sure how I feel about those ones, like the Saka one where the shot has already gone. Um, but, yeah, anyway. Uh, if you think we're digressing a little from West Germany... <laughs> versus France in 1982, it's because you've never listened to Ness and Dorma before because I'm afraid this is what we do and we hope you enjoy it because I damn well do and I hope uh, I hope my, my fellow uh, podders do as well. Uh, Mike, have you anything to say before we, we move on? Uh, well, I've got a half-hour thesis I'd like to read out on <laughs> 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 on on hair pulling at corners, but I'll well, leave that for a, yeah, yeah, I'll leave that yeah. for another day. Well, to be honest, you've come to the right place, mate. Uh, but that'll be a, another God, there day. Was some, uh, there was some scope for hair pulling in this game, wasn't oh, there? Oh dear, yeah. dear, man of the match. It's a bit of a cliche. In fact, these days it's a cliche that is player of the match rather than man of the match. But uh, then it was very much man of the match. So um, come to you, Mike. First, who's your man of the match? Well, it's hard to pick one in a game like this, I think, because um, mm. no one no one player dominates the match, and there are just loads of like really brilliant kind of cameos in it, or kind of um, you know just really good individual performances. Uh, we talked about Ruminiger's uh, cameo earlier in the pod um, about two hours ago, I think, um, <laughs> where, where you know he, he comes on, and he, he turns the game, but he's only actually on the pitch for about. I think twenty-five minutes or something like that. Um, I like one, would... of those, one of those Oscar winners who gets best actor for five minutes of screen time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would probably say I would go with Alan Jerez. Um He was just a player I love anyway, um, and I, I think has has a real kind of influence on this French team and the way it the way it plays and the way it stitches attacks together. I mean, it's it, it's kind of Platini's team in a sense, as he, you know, he's the captain, he's the goal scorer, he's the, you know, the, the most iconic player. But uh, Jerez just kind of stitches everything together for France in this. He scores a cracking goal as well um, to make it three-one, which I think goes off both posts, which is always nice to see. You know, it's uh, <laughs> before it crosses the line, and um, 
his celebrations great. It's almost Tardelli esque the way you know he's, he's pumping his fists and oh, it's kind of laced with sadness really because like with the Jaws music, you know what's coming. Yeah, <laughs> they they really do think they're in the um, in the final at that point. But um, yeah, I, I just love the way he orchestrates it. I, I love that someone of you know that stature can you know dominate a game. Yeah, I think you can see in it a bit in a, in this in the way football is going to go that. You know, in the future, it will have less room for people like Jerez or the size of Jerez. And, you know, even Amaros and, you know, so Amaros, Ettore and uh, Jerez, I don't know what their combined height is, but, you know, they're the three smallest players on the pitch with, with basket, I think. And some of these, in midfield particularly, you know, like Breitner and Dremler, they're just towering over Jerez. But he's just, you know, outwitting them, passing random. He's so composed on the ball. Um, and it's incredible, really, to think that the the whole of the car magique never played for France at any kind of youth levels at all. They all just they all just slipped through the net of whatever they were doing then with youth teams and under twenty ones and things like that. And he got capped quite late for France. I think he was, he was something like twenty four or twenty five um, before he got capped for France. A real late bloomer, but but what a player! And uh, two of the players I would. Make note of as well was uh, Marius Trezor, who's a, he's a player I uh, really want to find out more about. Brilliant at centre back for them. Uh, would carry the ball out just like majestically from back to front. Uh, dribble round players. Uh, I, I thought he had a really good game as well. Scores a cracking volley in this. And Rob mentioned earlier Klaus Fischer, who kind of gets skipped over in the history mm. of German forwards. You know, they go from Gert Muller to Rummenigge to Voller and then to Quinsman and then on. But, uh, yeah, brilliant goal-scoring record. And scores a great goal in this himself uh, with an overhead kick. Litvaski. Yeah, they're the kind of cameos I'm talking about, really. But if I had to pluck one out of the whole match, um, I would say Jerez. I'll just add to that, um, because you mentioned Ettore there, and mm. you will be able to find the lineups in um, the preamble to the, the podcast, the written support material, your accompanying notes, available on a PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> but Ettore was the goalkeeper. Yeah. And to see this kind of little man in goal, it reminds me sometimes of uh, Jacques Ferru, the uh, the French scrum half. And there are some parallels to be drawn between uh, the attitude and the uh, flair of this French team and the attitude and flair of the French rugby teams at the time. But Ferru was, I think, a five-foot-five-inch scrum half where I think... Uh, Mike Phillips for Wales, a generation or two later, was six foot four. And you know, you, you look at Giras and think that um, that the midfield that was to come after uh, this French side that won in '98 had uh, Vieira and Petit in the midfield, which you know, Giras would need to be like um, the uh, the is it the the, the the three the three boys uh, standing on each other's shoulders and Bojack Horseman in order to, <laughs> to get eye level with uh, yeah. 
with the Vieira or Petit. Um, so, yeah, uh, Eteri is a tiny goalkeeper, but, yeah, Shiraz, a, a, a dream of a player. Um, brilliant. I'm glad you mentioned the celebration because it's an absolute joy, but it's tinged with that operatic sense that we know that tragedy, albeit of a footballing uh, variety, is just around the corner. Um, Rob, I, I know that, that you also are an admirer of the uh, the little Frenchman. Yeah, like Mike, I found it quite hard to pick a man in the match because there was just so many, yeah, brilliant performances. But I went for Jurassic as well. I mean, he plays a part in the first goal, makes the second, scores the third. But also it's a little bits in the game. He's central to that, what Ferguson called the passing carousel when Barcelona did it. And there is something so nice about, particularly in central midfield, where football is generally at its nastiest and most dangerous to see this kind of delicate, sensual ball player excelling. Um, and he was always a bit overshadowed. I think of Patin and Jurassic as a bit like, not the same, but a bit like Xavi and Iniesta, except... Xavi and Iniesta were kind of equals, whereas Platini always overshadowed Gires. Um, well, just looking at Gires' club career, actually, he scores nearly 200 goals in his career. So he clearly was a goal threat as well. But I guess he was slightly more withdrawn for France because Platini was a playmaker who scored goals like a number nine. Um, but yeah, even just the first goal, I love that Gires just flicks his free kick to the outside of the foot. I think Platini heads it down, Rochetto's pulled back, and then they get a penalty and Platini scores. Just, just a class player really um yeah the kind of player i think if we could all choose to be a certain type of footballer i think that's the one i would kind of want to be um and it's, it's just something about midfield in particular which is always where the muck and bullets are but especially in the 80s you know we've spoken about two foot challenges and everything and so for him to thrive like that um yeah it's just, just a lovely player to watch and definitely reminds me uh, the closest i mean i like mike's comparison with the dutch team but they also remind me a bit of the spanish team not quite to the same level. Spain were just extraordinary, but there are. I can see a lot of Xavi in the way Jerez played, definitely. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I remember many years ago, I think, uh, Rob, it's the kind of thing that I I remember as being sort of 2018 and we found out mm. it was actually 2008, that we, we had either a conversation in real life or, or online or something where you said to me, I was talking about Jan Mulby at Liverpool and you said to me, everyone loves a heads up uh, uh, ball playing midfielder. And mm. we often think of them as being quite tall and elegant, but Jures yeah. was quite a short squat man, but he was still yeah, a head up picks. ball playing yeah, midfielder. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And you're just a, a, a lovely player, he, as was the case with all of these players, I think even better in, in 84, which I think was the apogee of this yeah. uh, French side. But they were still pretty damn good in 86 as, as well. Uh, yeah. there. I'm, I'm taking a slightly different tack. Um, and it, it goes to the kind, a kind of player that I've always admired. And I think some of it is growing up with Reed and Bracewell in Everton's midfield. But Tigana, to me, was just mm. everything you want from a box-to-box midfielder. And yeah. you know, box-to-box midfielders are a bit out of fashion these days. But he is everywhere on that pitch. Yeah. Um, he finds space to be available for the ball all the time. He carries the ball. There are ball carriers everywhere on the field, in both sides, to be honest. Breitner is very good in this match as well, playing yeah. almost the same role as Tigana. But uh, he is just fantastic, I think. And mm. I, I know, Rob, you said, is it just a little easy for kind of obvious visual reasons to to say that, you know, he plays the Kante role here. But 
he does play the Kante role in with, with Kante at his best in that he's constantly driving the team forward. Yeah. He's always available for the defence when they need a pass. And he's looking to play the killer ball as well. <clears throat> he probably isn't going to score goals. He, there's a, a finish where it's every bit as bad as those ones that Kante used to make with a slightly sheepish grin on his face for Leicester before he realised he's really got to give the ball to Vardy. Uh, and... Um, he, he was just a fantastic, it was a fantastic performance from uh, an absolutely brilliant player who does go under the radar a little bit in the Magic Square because, you know, he, he's seen as a bit more of a water carrier, as Cantona would say, a domestique mm. from from uh, cycling's terminology. But he was so much more than that, and he shows it in this match. The only thing that mitigates against Tigana being man of the match is he very clearly runs out of steam in the second period of extra time. But to me, that just shows how much he was giving in the rest of the game because when Rummenigge comes on and changes the game, um, then it's it's at least half Rummenigge coming on and half Tigana in particular, but some other French players yeah. just, just getting tired. Seville, the heat, the... Batistar, the emotions of it all. We shouldn't be saying, it's, you know, we're disappointed that he got tired. We should be saying we're so pleased that we saw 105 minutes of brilliance. Yeah, yeah. and of course they'd lost their second sub, which is a big, that's a knock-on effect to the Batistar yeah. thing that they couldn't bring someone on. Yeah, I'd, just, I'd love to see Tigana's running stats. It's just, his engine is extraordinary. He, um, he's, and you're right about carrying the ball as well. A beautiful runner as well. Yeah, he goes elegant. over the ground with yeah. such grace. And of course, you know, he famously, fantastic. it's a Tigana surge that leads to Platini's winner against Portugal, isn't it? In 84. Yeah, yeah. And the last minute of the semi final. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought he was right up there as well. Yeah, just a brilliant player to watch. I've, I've got a couple of other contenders, but have you guys got uh, a kind of second rank? Yeah, I, thought, I mean, this is a match that has 22 players in the match or 20. I thought Lipbarski was terrific. Yeah. Like, sort of from the right wing for Germany. He was a kind of new, not quite playmaker, but he really burst on the scene. I think he's got some, I think his goal is something like his eighth in 12 internationals or something. I also thought Hans Peter Briegel was really just good be, at left. Just before we, we, let's, we'll get to Briegel in a minute, but I just want to interrogate you a little bit on Lipbarski. Do you think his, his shoot on sight policy was. I mean, obviously it paid off because he scored the goal there, but I was surprised he was shooting quite as much as he, he did. He didn't in the second half because the Germans were forced back, but in the first mm. half, he gets within 20 yards and he's having a crack. Is that is that the right policy? Or I mean, but to I me, think, to me it really is. If you've got sight of goal, do it. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, well, he, hits, he hits the bar with a free kick, doesn't he? I remember that. Um, yeah. I didn't really notice that, to be honest, but I suppose, I suppose at the time his confidence must have been stratospheric given the tournament he'd had and the start of his career he'd had. And he was yeah. their most skillful attacker. I mean, they had, um, with Rummenigge out, they had Felix Magat, who was sort of playing as a left-sided attacker, sort of. Didn't do a huge amount. Fisher was a good player, but he was quite he was a big, big lump, essentially, albeit brilliant in the air with his feet, which is a kind of variation on the, <laughs> the usual. Um, I, I don't know, really. I hadn't really noticed Lipbarski shooting that much, but he just felt like a constant kind of buzzing menace. Um Starting for the right, but actually free to go anywhere. And I know I thought that was really noticeable about this game is positions were kind of a basis for negotiation for a hell of a lot of players. Um, it felt like there was a lot more freedom than you would see in a modern game, maybe when players are coached more uh, stringently. I don't know. Yeah, one thing um, 
that's interesting about watching a game from 40 years ago. And I think this is why things like, you know, old match reports um, and things like, you know, by David Lacey and Hugh McElvoy, they are kind of so important. As you, you need to get a sense of um, the, the kind of context this match mm. takes place in and what's happened before. So with Litbarski, he, he, I mean, what you don't get from just watching a game in isolation from 40 years ago is what kind of form the players were in coming into yes. this match. And he, he came into it off the back of a great club season. I think he'd made his debut for West Germany that season. And he was the, the newest and youngest player in what was quite an experienced German uh, team by that point that won the European Championship together. Um, and he... He just seemed to be in that kind of zone, that that kind of age and form, where you know he just he, he's not bound by anything. So he just mm. he tries everything. So he will shoot uh, with yeah. abandon from outside the box. He will like you know, you know, dribble too much, take too many players on. But uh, and he you know he'd had a, a brilliant tournament as well. I think he was shortlisted for you know one of the ten best players for the. Uh, the golden ball, but um, if you if you just go back and watch it before you, I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't get any kind of sense of that, I don't think, um, if watching this game. But the the form that players go into World Cups in is a huge governing factor because you know it only takes place over four weeks, and if mm. you've had a terrible March, April, May with your club, um, you know that that will reflect in the World Cup, but it's not representative of your you know your whole career. So, I know yeah, it's I amazing, mean, isn't it? I mean, a good example of that is Rooney in two thousand and ten who up until the March had been amazing, yeah. as good as Messi and Ronaldo. Then he got an injury and then he couldn't quite recover. And of course, his World Cup in England was diabolical. Yeah, it's, it's, careers can be defined by well, something that's the, completely beyond your control. The, the classic, I think, for that was Salvatore Scalacci, wasn't it? Yeah, in, yeah. In exactly. Italy, who, who really, I think his career was, was really two seasons. But in the middle of those two seasons, he had a World Cup in mm. which he was, you know, sort of compelling viewing. Um yeah, uh, I, I want to come to to you, Mike, and then we'll go back to Rob for because he's already mentioned Hans Peter Briegel. But uh, I'll give you a second a second choice. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you completely on everything you've said about uh, Tigana um, as a player, and I think I think it's interesting this match um, that you could see the need for France to kind of balance that midfield better. It's like they, it's yeah. like they realised this in the most important match of their, of their entire lives. Yeah. Um, and you know, Gengini's to... not, not amazing, is he? No, he's not. No, and he, yeah, he goes off injured, and they've they've got no midfielders on the bench, so they put Battiston in as like yeah. essentially a holding midfielder because Brighton was just kind of running through them in the first. Yeah, half. he was. And then after Battiston goes off, uh, Lopez, who's a you know, huge centre half. You know, if Schumacher had tried on Lopez what he tried on Batterson, Schumacher would probably need a hip replacement. <laughs> I think he would have got uh, broken in half. But um, yeah, the need to kind of balance that midfield better, I think, you know, you can kind of see it in this. It's too late to salvage this particular game. But, you know, they, they did solve that problem in the future with Fernandez, And, you know, and also, I mean, with Ettore as well, I think you can see in this that he's not not really up to scratch at international level. And I, I don't know what Joel Batts was doing at the time or where he was playing, but they, they found him pretty late as well. He was well into his mid-20s before he, um, before he played for France. But, uh, yeah, I would have, uh, yeah, Tagana probably as my, uh, as my uh, number two man of the match. I think I agree with you on that. Well, my, my number two uh, man of the match would be, uh, is it Manuel or Amaros? Oh, Amaros, um, yeah. Yeah, 
I, I was amazed to find out he was 20 um, yeah. because yeah. it's an extraordinary display of, of really 21st century fullback play from, from a kid of, of that age who must have been very confident that um, the brilliant Trezor and Bossis were, were covering behind. But he's everywhere on the field. He's an irritant. He, he can get his head up. He can carry the ball. He can make a pass. And he forces, especially at a time when, in the first half, when, when West Germany were dominant in terms of possession and in terms of territory, he forces them back by his adventure, um, finding space out wide. And... Um, just a, a fantastic uh, performance from a player who would instantly fit into any Champions League side, I think, of, of today. Um, you, you could probably say that about quite a few here because there's, you know, there's some great players and a handful of uh, all-time greats on the field. But he seemed to me to be uh, a, a player who who was was from was from 2022, happened to be playing in a 1982 World Cup. Yeah, he had a, he had a fantastic game. I think completely fearless as well. Yeah, again, yeah. that kind of combination of like youth and his form at the time. Also, you know, you know, bounced into Schumacher when he when he was getting touchy with a lot of the yeah. uh, French players. Um, and also, I mean, th- this this whole game is a, a cavalcade of what ifs. I think. Yeah. But that that be. shot where he hits the bar in the last minute yeah. of normal what? time. Imagine yeah. if that goes in. You know what that would do for you know how he'd be remembered. You know settling that <laughs> that came in the ninetieth minute, but you know it's the width of a crossbar and he's uh, and he's denied. But so we'll go to Rob, the the man mountain of Hans Peter yeah. Briegel, um, which he probably wouldn't be a man mountain now, but there that kind of puffed out chest, that kind of barrel shape, and uh, again you, you you can't help saying it. He just he, he looks like somebody is emptied everything that you can think of in a German person and they've created Hans-Peter Briegel out of out of Germanness. But he, he, he was a hell of a presence on the field, wasn't he? Yeah. It's not a huge amount to say. Just just that he's just relentless, just kept noticing him. He's constantly in the game, charging up and down, playing left wing back, socks around his ankles. I yeah. think they, they mentioned on the commentary he used to be a decathlete. Um and but it's all I mean it's mainly about power and energy and pace. But there's one bit of brilliant skill he does on the Right hand, I don't know what he's been doing on the right hand side of the box. The ball comes over his shoulder and he does this kind of whirling volley, or not volley, but the ball bounces up. Whirling shot with the outside of his left foot. And it's extraordinary athleticism and skill. And I think actually punched it behind for a corner. But um, yeah, I thought he was terrific. Brightner as well, actually. Just yeah, kind of, so much experience. But also there's a lovely scurry through the midfield that leads to um, Lipbarski's goal. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, some players kind of game felt like it passed them by a bit. Dremler, Magat, um, Stielica didn't have a great game, as you say, but there was a lot of quality in the team as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just, there's just something so kind of powerful and domineering about Briegel. I think he, he also has a chance at one, one when he kind of bursts into the area, whacks a shot there, three blocks kind of late on. Um, so yeah, I thought he was very good. Uh, yeah. Any but- other, any other mentioned in dispatches, Mike? I've got one. Well, just to touch on Briegel, actually, I think he's, as we spoke about Amaros earlier, I think he's a very kind of modern player as well hmm. in that he's very adaptable. And I think he, he does kind of sum up the will, the power and the kind of energy of this uh, West German team. It's interesting, actually, he he played at Verona uh, with Preben hmm. Elkjaer 
in the 84-85 season where they won Serie A. And he was actually the team's top scorer. He scored nine goals and he, he played for... Did he? Yeah, they played him in midfield. Um, oh, he, made, he may have been the second highest guy. I think maybe uh, Galdarese got 11 or something Even like so that. nine is a lot in Serie A. Yeah. It's a ridiculous yeah. thing to say. Nine goals is a lot, but it really was. It really was. In then, a Serie yeah. A season, especially if you didn't take penalties. Yeah. But he was... Um, you know, Serie A then was uh, the best league in the world by by an absolute distance. Yeah, and because they because they only had two um, overseas players in each team, it was a real you know there's there's tremendous kudos if you were one of those thirty two players that was handpicked to play in that league. Um, and that you know there were obvious choices there. You know you had people like Zico, Socrates, Maradona, Rumenigge, Platini, obviously. But then you also had people, you know, like Klaus Bergeron from that great Danish team and mm. uh, and people like Briegel. I mean, the value to those kind of players in those kind of teams was, uh, you know, was pretty, uh, pretty huge. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do you want to come in with a before I do with a mentioned in dispatches? Any other players, Mike? Um, not for me. Uh, no, not for me. And I would, I would just say, I'll just go back to like um, we mentioned it before. But yeah, Rumenigger's little uh, cameo, I thought was uh, it's the most incredible thing, really, isn't it, to hold your best player back in reserve yeah. for a match of that stature. I mean, it does make you wonder with West Germany, did they go into this too overconfident, like they were going to walk through France? But um, one thing that does govern this game match is that, and it, the whole scheduling of this World Cup in terms of, you know, gaps between games, rest periods, was was absolutely terrible. There was one point, you know, Brazil, the best team in the whole tournament, they, they didn't play a match for 11 days yeah. after they qualified really? at the group stage. Yeah, they actually organised a friendly against the local team. Just so that's play. between the first group stage and Argen- their Argentina and game. playing the Argentina game, yeah. It's unbelievable, wow. really. That is, but, yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. But the final uh, of this World Cup was in Madrid three days later. So this game, actually, because of the penalties, I mean, it finished at quarter to midnight. On the Thursday? On the, on the Thursday. So wow. I, I think that I, heard, I heard some story that the German team, they left after they flew to Madrid. Their flight was delayed till six in the morning. So that wiped out the next day. So they had one day, Saturday, to basically get that game and all the emotion out, out of their system before they played a World Cup final. It's, it's a ridiculous schedule, really. Absurd. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to... Um, Gonna, uh, we've already praised Trezor, who had, I think, a fantastic game and scored a brilliant goal. Um, but I was really impressed with Maxime Bossis because mm. his defending was really good. But he also goes on two runs. The second one didn't really get a mention on the uh, commentary on the, the video that we saw. Um, but they're, they're a bit like... Who, who was it in 1970 for the famous Carlos Alberto goal? Cerezo? Cloderaldo. Cloderaldo. Yeah, that's, that's him. And he, there are other times where he, where he carries the ball out of defence and he commits midfielders before making a forward pass. And he just looks like such a ball-playing centre-half. He's a right-back in this game. Well, yeah. Well, yeah def- but it's interesting because they're so fluid, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it could be. Could be but we, we kind of think... Of, of kind of Beckenbauer and the, you know the, the great German uh, sweepers as being playmakers lying deep and I think there are times when Bassis does play like a playmaker yeah. uh, from no, deep again he's another lovely player to watch covering the ground you know the balance and the 
the the running style is is great as well. And I I wasn't really expecting that, um, but it's it's that difference from seeing even twenty minutes on YouTube highlights to watching the full two hour extravaganza of the uh, of the match plus extra time plus penalties. Of course, he does miss. Uh, the penalty as the sixth taker, doesn't he? He's the yeah. he's the added man. Yeah. Uh, but Poor but practice. what a what a tremendous performance uh, from from Bossis there. Yeah, and it's, it, it, that's a good point about the penalty. Actually, I mean, he was the first person to have to shoulder this globally televised anguish of you know missing the the, the key penalty for your country. It's. Uh, Having not hate, been in the five, he yeah, wasn't part of the five, yeah. was he? I hate to anglicise, but his penalty is identical to Southgate's, isn't it? It is, it's yeah. Bit, it's the same kind of meekness, but also it's the sixth penalty. He's the kind of well, yeah. defender, kind of had a great game. It's so It really struck me how similar it was. Um, so, anyway. so maybe this is a good point to for, for us to take a break. If you're listening, you might not get this break. We have to decide whether we release <laughs> one part or, or two parts. But we started off with the operatic element of the match, and it's a, it's an operatic finish here with a with a, a tragic hero uh, brought to uh, usually in operas. It's a heroine, of course, uh, brought to to uh, their metaphoric death if not the literal one in, in this one we're going to look at some what if moments um mike yeah well i think what a big what if moment in this match um is with about 18 minutes left in extra time actually um so france start obeying the ball uh, around the pitch with uh you know with great style and i think they're enjoying the kind of vindictiveness of it <laughs> Uh, you know, rubbing uh, the West German players' faces in a, a bit after what had um, happened earlier in the match. But, you know, knowing what we know now about how it transpired, knowing what we know about the opposition they're facing, um, that this game is far from over. And there's a point at 3-1 where they, they put together a lovely little move down the right. Um, and, you know, they could cross it in and go for another goal, but then they, they kind of... Like keep knocking it about, and they eventually lose the ball. And two of their players, I think Jures and I think maybe Platini, go down in the same move. And it's from that point that West Germany essentially break up the field and score the goal that gets it back to three-two. But you just wonder if at three-one, if they've been a bit more savvy, you know, if they'd um, if they'd have managed the situation better. Um, I don't think they kind of fully tuned into the kind of jeopardy they were still in. You know, they, they were knocking it about like they had it won, essentially. There's a really interesting um, interview with uh, Amy Jacquet, actually, who was the manager who would go on to win the World Cup for France in 98. At the time, he was manager of Bordeaux. I remember seeing this on World Cup stories. So a couple of his players, um, Tigana, Jerez, were in that team. And he said when they got back to Bordeaux that summer, he was furious with them. He was, you know, what were you doing at 3-1? You know, you have to, you have to play a different type of football you know, when you go 3-1 up to um, to see a game out. So that's a big what-if, I think. If, um, you know, if, if France had managed that last... It was only 18 minutes left in extra time that they had to see out, and West Germany got gone, essentially. Um, if they'd have played that a bit differently, you know, they could have been in the final easily. Ole yeah. football against West Germany is never going to be. It's like, it's like <laughs> no. calling Kaiser Soze a twat or something. It's only going to go in one way. 
<laughs> yeah, they had a, a bit of a warning with the uh, the big steely-eyed uh, forward who'd come on. <laughs> so they, they <laughs> kind of knew something was coming, didn't they? Um, I mean, is it, is it, Rob, is that a kind of thing where it's a bit like the old Gaza question and there's plenty of other players. You don't get the... You don't get the three goals earlier if you don't get the Olays after. Is it kind of seated in the culture of that side that that they to, to turn off the tap um, that that it would have been too much against their their personality? Because you definitely get it that they they're sort of high on their own geniuses and they're knocking it about. And you've got these Germans with Breitner with his World Cup medal, Rummenigge I've already mentioned, and plenty more. And you're thinking, don't do it, don't do it. Yeah, possibly. I think there is an element of, in cricket terms, it's the way they play. Yeah. I think Mike's point was really good that I don't think they had twigged the jeopardy they were still in because you could see that in Jurassic's celebration, which I think we spoke about. It's the celebration of someone who thinks that's it, we're in a World Cup final. This seeks to put it back for Jurassic. Here is Jurassic. And there was a kind of naivety to it, I suppose, which in a way there shouldn't have been because West Germany had already, like Chris Freddie said in this thing, they'd been dining out on this kind of comeback since 1954. So it wasn't without precedent. I think any other country maybe, because I think also we have much more experience now of the kind of dramatic, absurd, extreme finishes. But in 82, particularly the World Cup, there wouldn't have been that many wild extra time periods. So you almost felt, 3-1, that's it. They're in the final. Um, so I think as much as anything, they just hadn't really... I think they almost thought they were just playing out time, you know, that was just... I think it had been such an emotional game as well that I don't think there was any chance to kind of sit and think and get any kind of clarity for one of a less wanky word. But I, I think there is an element of the way to play, yeah. But also, I really do think that everyone just assumes pretty consciously or unconsciously that, that was it. And then the minute it goes through to you, think, oh, shit... Um, because I'm trying to think, I mean, I'm sure there'll be one, but I can't think of many at that stage come back from two goals down in extra time. It was just the kind of thing, in a way that now it's quite normal to see two goals in added time. You know, Man City did it to win the league, Man United did it to win the treble. I think AC Milan scored two last night when we're recording this. Um, but there was a time when you couldn't conceive that happening. Um, it was miraculous when it did for the first time. It becomes steadily normal. And I think that's kind of what happened here. I just think France hadn't, fully appreciated the situation I mean nobody says 3-1 is the most dangerous lead in football <laughs> so uh, no. I, I, I think and um, listeners I hate to disabuse you of your misconceptions um, <laughs> but we do actually do a little bit of preparation before uh, these podcasts and when we had a, a brief conversation a couple of weeks or so ago I, I mentioned that the, the French played a bit like the France Rugby Union team in trying to score goals from kind of all over the field at any time in this kind of reckless throw the ball about amongst the uh, the backs and let's see what happens. And I think in Rugby Union terms, not that I'm an expert by any means, but they were kind of throwing the ball about in their own 25. And yeah. um, the Germans just said, well, we'll have a piece of this and, and 
and surely did. You know more uh, about you know more about rugby than me. The, it feels like the France rugby team hasn't evolved, and I don't say that as a criticism necessarily. Whereas the football team has, they're a lot more kind of pragmatic now, and and were when they won the World Cup. Really, that was built on defence. Um, why is that? Do you think? But well, I, 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 the comparison between eighty-two and what we think of as the rugby team, like ninety-nine, is really is a really good one. I, I think that what happens in rugby, I say absolutely no expert, is they keep changing the rules to make the kind of French approach um, more uh, more of a winning strategy, if you like. Mm. Um, and the players keep making it more pragmatic and then they change the rules again to, to play more like France because everybody mm. wants to see teams play in the, in the classic French way. And of course, football changes its rules as, as well. Um, wasn't it wasn't it a bit jarring to see back passes in this in this match? Yeah, it really was. Yeah. So you know, I, I think it's it's there, but I I just think players have a they go out. What, what did is it? Um, Mike Tyson said, "Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the kind of reverse in football, if you like, is that you go out with a plan to be pragmatic, and then you decide to start punching the other bloke in the face, mm. and it's too <laughs> much fun, and. You certainly get a, a sense of this, but it, it's why here we are 40 years yeah. on eulogising a game. And I don't know about you guys, but I can still see whole moves in my mind. You know, mm. it's, it's, it lives there. Mm. And uh, you know, if, you, if you want to live forever, mm-hmm. um, then if that's second prize in winning the World Cup competition, it's not a bad one, is it really? Mm. Yeah, I think... Um... You do wonder in that 15 minutes what would have happened if France could have got it to the break at yes, 3-1. Exactly. You know, if they could have spoke to, you know, Hidalgo maybe and, and, and you know, or discussed it between them. But that 15, yeah, that 15 minutes alone was extraordinary. It kind of, it took on a bit of a life of its own, really, because within that as well, straight after France goes 3-1 up, Klaus Fischer has a goal disallowed. Mm. Um, and the goal actually West Germany worked to get back to 3-2 is Rumenig is a really beautifully worked yeah, it's excellent. goal down the left. And that's what that's why they they are able to uh, make these kind of great comebacks is that they don't panic, really. They keep playing football, um, which seems like an easy thing to say, but you see so many teams think, right, get the centre-half up and we'll just, you know, like launch it at his head and try and make something happen. They, they just kept playing football in that. And once they got one back, I mean, France just seemed to... Yeah. Legs went, go go to pieces for a couple of minutes, and it just. But the match was it set, felt so wild and uncontained. Then it reminded me reminded me a bit of watching um, Liverpool Newcastle, the great four three. It's like it, it wasn't like you know the managers weren't affecting it. It just had a life yeah. of its own this match, um, and uh, and just developed the way it did. I mean, you mentioned Rummenigge's goal uh, to get Germany back to three two, and amidst all that emotion, and it was. It was an emotional night for more than just a World Cup semi-final. It's it's hot. It's Seville. You've had Batistón uh, carried off. Um, you're you're three-one up. I mean, the, the, if the blood could be pumping any harder, I, I can't believe it would be you know humanly possible to stay inside a a body. And yet, Rumenigge just does what you're supposed to do as a forward. He attacks the near post. He gets a connection on it. And he scores. Yeah. And to have that, that, I hate to use the word as well, Rob, to have that clarity in that environment, particularly coming on as a sub where he's supposed to be getting into the rhythm and pace of a, a game. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a goal that's often forgotten, but it is a classic of its kind. 
Yeah, it's a really deft finish as well. Yeah. So people coming across him, the keeper's edge sort of stabs it around. But yeah, it's a, a terrific goal. And I think actually all three Germany goals in different ways are very good. I and mean, Fischer's is the most memorable, the overhead kick to equalise. But I was going to how many minutes are there between Jurassic making it 3-1 and Rummenigge 3-2? Is it a like four or five? It's four minutes, yeah. And, um, yeah. With the disallowed goal in between as well. Yeah. You're I mean, right. from, from about 70 minutes, it's just... An endless stream of chances at both ends. It's really, yeah, yeah incredible. And when um, when Rumeniga comes on, actually, which I think is at two one, two one, yeah. Um, you can see why he's such a kind of right. Just in the way he moves. I mean, because Rumeniga, you look at him; he's got no obvious like real pace, no, nope. or or skill, or big. you know, he's not brilliant in the air, but. I love it when players just direct things with their hands when they're running mm. for the ball. It's like, right, you go there, you go there. He's, yeah. he's just, um, he's, he's like just orchestrating the whole thing, and it's, uh, yeah, it's great to watch. You don't really see that so often anymore. He, he also looks a bit. He looks about forty years old to me. He looks like the kind of school teacher coming on in a in a yeah. kids game where they're all running around like mad things and say, "Calm down, now, boys, calm down." And I'm going to uh, show you how the game is really played. I mean, some of that is that he's not at full pace, but he was at enough mm. pace, obviously, to affect the game. But. Um, yeah, it's um, some players just have this presence, don't they? And you know, we, we would think of Platini, and there's lots of other players in this <laughs> game who have that that presence. But certainly, certainly, I mean, if you're if you're English, maybe the French are not programmed the way we are. But if if you're English and you saw the German centre forward and European Player of the Year or whatever he was at the time coming on, you just think, oh well, that's it now. Pack up and go home. <laughs> um, even even though we're three one up, you just think that. And yet the French don't do they? They, they continue to push and harry um i want to talk about another what if if i may mm. and it, it surprised me in watching the match back but platini scores a goal or or he's he's through on goal i can't remember exactly on 56 minutes and tigana plays the pass and platini is just strayed offside it's a tight decision. It would go to VAR these days. Mm-hmm. And Tigana is, like, really angry about it. He's shouting at Platini. Platini's got his head down. He's really given him the full SPs uh, there. Now, France score there on 56 minutes. I mean, they couldn't have played any better, I think, in the second half anyway. But, I mean, the game... I'm not saying the game's done because we've just said that the game isn't done, but... I'd forgotten that, and that was a big moment, I think, when he gets that offside flag. I think it's, um, is it Rochetot, mm. I think? Maybe is it Rochetot? <clears throat> I think so, yeah. It's kind no, of the one I can picture. It's Platini, I think. I, I, know oh, the one Gary's, I know the one Gary's talking about. It's when Tigana, it's 2v1, and Tigana delays the pass, and they do, they start throwing their hands oh, and giving each other yeah. barkings. It's very funny. Yeah. I think, I'm pretty sure it's just before, but a minute or two before Batistone. Um Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I know the one you mean. And I suppose also the game might have evolved differently. You know, Batistan might not be making surging runs from central midfield and so on and so on. Like the thing that makes me laugh about that is just the, how demonstrative, demonstrative they both are as they start arguing about it. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they come over very French, uh, that's for sure. And maybe it's sort of reading back into it, but Platini um, had not, 
become the Platini of 1984 when he was so dominant in the side, but he was still the captain. And um, Rob, there's a bit of backstory as to how Platini got to be captain because his captaincy and indeed his place was in some jeopardy as a result of off-field matters, affair de la coeur, as the French say. Oh, yeah, what's this? Is it involving Larios and an affair? Yeah. I forget yeah. which way round it is now. Uh, um, yeah, it's Larios had an affair with Platini's wife, I think, which... Um, and Platini uh, which got Larios to, dumped from the squad. Yeah, so he was in the 22, but um, because in the World Cup, then you picked a match day squad, you know, you picked five subs. Yes. He was basically just ostracised to the stands for the whole uh, the whole tournament, but was a a kind of nominal holding midfielder, Larios, you know, could have yeah. been been the one that could have solved some of their their <laughs> problems in that midfield. But um but uh yeah that was I think that was in the build up to the tournament. Yeah. I think that was uh Can you imagine what, what it would be like today? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Well we had the, uh, the John Terry Wayne Bridge thing. I mean that was a kind of a undercurrent yeah. of a couple of England squads, wasn't it? And, uh, yeah. yeah. They'd They'd have a they'd have a mock up of um, the French manager and Platini's wife saying, "Have I picked the right man?" You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuff. Both say the same thing. But um, yeah, I mean, nobody knew what a wag was in those days. Thank <laughs> God. But um, the 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 wick seems to have been turned down a little on that these mm. days. But it's still there. And oh God, the build up to Qatar. Thank God it's relatively short, so we won't have too many of those of those stories. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a genuine one. Um, and they did pick Platini, and um, he he certainly delivered. Um, the the uh, I mean, one of the other talking points uh, that. I wanted to mention it's a it's a, a change here, but I, I did mention it a little earlier. Is that I think this was the first European team that had a really strong representation of black players. I mean, today it wouldn't mm. be worthy of, of mention, but I've got the um, the compilation of the uh panini world cup stickers which you know it's it, it wouldn't be cited in an academic journal for peer review <laughs> flicking through them it gives you a flavor of the of the squads and the european sides were all white pretty much i think maybe in 78 there was the odd face coming through but here we have you know a multi-ethnic team um in which you know, we, we barely make mention of it now that obviously Tigana is black, Trezor, um, others as well. Jean Vian. Um, yeah. 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 And uh but but it it was it was a difference. Um and it was at a time when England were, were just starting to bring through black players as well. I think Viv Anderson was the first black player to play for for England. But we see a kind of Inevitably, because visually it's different, we see the, the seeds of 21st century national teams in the multi-ethnic uh, French team that was later to develop into the um, the Blanc, Bleu, Noir, was it, or something, the uh, 98 side. They had that, that 
kind of slogan of the uh, the black players, those of uh, Arabic um, origin. Obviously, Zidane would be the figurehead of that, and the uh, white players in, in France. Uh, is that is that something that that isn't worth mentioning, or should we mark that in a way that that this match was the most obvious ex- exemplar of of a, a new kind of national team that was that was coming forward that drew on the uh full range of ethnicities uh that that uh, were available for selection no i think it's really interesting yeah it's not a point i'd kind of noticed but um no you mentioned it yeah i was looking at the england squad i think there's only viv anderson in there um and there wouldn't have been many other black players in the other european teams so yeah no absolutely yeah, I think um, Jean Vion, Trezor, and Tigana were all actually born in uh, the French colonies. So, the, um, you know, they, they weren't initially born in France either. And I think it's interesting. They are they are a kind of trailblazer for the team you mentioned in uh, 98 that did go on a win, um, you know, and, and drew from all those um, resources as well and had to stand up to the, you know, bigotry pre-tournament yeah. of people like Jean-Marie Le Pen who was, who was saying this isn't a French team um, and things like that and the fact that they went on and the, that they won um, and you know they had that great night in Paris in 98 it's a real real kind of um, kind of rallying unifying moment it's, you know, it's, it's only like sport and football that can do things like this you know this that kind of moment is beyond the manufacture of um, politicians certainly you know someone as ignorant as Jean-Marie Le Pen but um yeah, I definitely think the 82 side were, uh, uh, you know, a real trailblazer for that. And as you say, a kind of a, a different makeup of a European national team that we hadn't uh, hadn't seen before. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to Paris in 98. I made the ill-advised decision to book the Eurostar to see the last stage of the Tour de France in 98. And that was the year of the Festina affair. So there was only about uh, 40 riders left who hadn't been thrown out. Or, or got on strike as a result of, of, of that. But it was still great to be in Paris for the Tour de France. And I remember I was walking towards the, the kind of Champs-Élysées where I was going to watch, and there was a, a, a guy who was – it's a Sunday, so you know Paris can be very quiet. There was a guy sort of pushing a broom or something outside a shop. And I, I might have had an Everton hat on or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Um, anyway, he said Mondial, something like this, sort of, you know, World Cup um, 98. And I said, you know, we, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. And then he said the slogan, um, which, alas, I can't remember exactly what it was. <laughs> it was those three words that describe the, 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 the difference in the side. Um, so it was it was quite sort of gratifying to, to hear that. And it was, it was everywhere um, in Paris at that Mm. at that time so so yeah i mean i think the precursor of 98 you see the seeds of it i think trezor was from guandalupe was here i think, I think uh, that sounds right yeah yeah, yeah. and um, also you had um amaros i think it was born to spanish parents uh, yeah with Pratini is uh he's, uh, he's franco-italian isn't he i think either one or yeah both of his parents are i think his, his father italian, is italian yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So um, we, we, we see something coming through uh, there. Um, uh, one of the talking points that I had, and we've kind of alluded to it here, um, is that there seem to be kind of ball carriers everywhere on the field. Um, 
there, there is obviously kind of pass and move, but it's not a, a match that has much in the way of, you know, one-touch, two-touch football. When a player gets it, he gets his head up and runs with the ball so often. It doesn't matter whether they're defenders or attackers. I mean, you see Brighton are running through the centre of midfield with the ball over and over again. It's not just the kind of French that uh, that that we kind of associate with the with the flair. There are German players who carry the ball before making a pass. Um is that is that something that I'm just sort of looking back with rose tinted spectacles, thinking of of sort of the my glory days as a Everton supporter in the mid '80s when we had ball carriers all over the field, or is that something that you guys saw? No, I think you're right. I mean, the, the obvious one is Brighton for the first Germany goal, kind of scurries through the midfield, flicks a pass efficiently to the goal. Tigana, you kind of in your mind's eye, you can see him surging forward, Litbarski. I don't know why, but it does. I think you're right, I, and I didn't think about it while I was watching it. But now you mention it, it does feel more pronounced than it would in a modern game. I was reading something about some boring data about ball carriers the other day, but it did reinforce that actually in the Premier League, this is that it doesn't happen that much. You know, you get someone like Grealish who does it, although that's now kind of being coached out of him a bit. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, I mean. But Bossis mm. carries the ball. Uh, he goes on at least two runs. I've mentioned that before. Um, but, it, you know, Trezor carries the ball as, mm. as well. Uh, it does feel uh, less poached, doesn't it? Yeah. It, 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 it does it, feel more of a free-for-all, um, which, which is part of the reason it's so enjoyable, I think. Yeah, uh, there aren't the the kind of vicious and cynical fouls. There's a little bit, especially when Germany come under pressure, that mm. we would expect to to come in. You know, the 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 kind of body checks that are body checks. Mm. You know, where the pl- defender runs away with his hands in the air, not me, Gov, and and that kind of thing. Um, it's a it's one hesitates to use the word clean, but it's a remarkably uncynical game. Is that uh, fair, Mike? Uh, well, bar the one, obvious. <laughs> we, well, we spoke yes. about for an hour. Um, yeah. yeah, actually, I mean, I think the I think there's only two yellow cards in this game, and they're both for fairly innocuous things, as far as Giras <clears throat> and Genjini, isn't it? Yeah, they're just beating down the wing. But um, yeah, I think uh, you know, outside of um, the Batistan incident, yeah, I think it's like a you know relatively clean game. I think um, one thing I noticed about the and I'm sure this is an optical illusion just for the, from the camera angle and where the camera is in the stadium. It just seems like there's so much space out there. Yeah, it's mm. it, The pitch looks absolutely huge. And I get, I'm sure it is the camera angle. You know what, like when you used to get the, the opposite of that is the old hybrid when yeah. it was more level to the pitch and you didn't get more of a bird's eye view of it. But this just feels like you're looking right down, you know, like this helicopter view of the, uh, the pitch. And it just feels like the space everywhere it's um and that that kind of accentuates all you know all the all the ball carrying um you get more of a sense of what they're seeing in front of them then i think and around them when they do that yeah i wonder if part of that is that there didn't seem to be that many tall players i mean you have the center halves there even they're probably about six foot but you know Vieira and Petit who are in the 98 side of course they would have been absolute giants on this field um and well sometimes I think that where you've got players where the majority of them are five nine five ten some of them shorter Gires I think was five six hmm. um that, that kind of scurrying appears to make the the, the 
pitch bigger, more space available. Well, when um, when West Germany bring up, bring on um, Horst Rubesch, yeah, they talk about him like he's Lou Ferrino in the Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> he's, yeah, only, he's only he's only about six foot one or six foot two. He's not yeah. um, he's, he's not like uh, Harland or or you know a striker or Nunes or a striker we see now. But uh, but that he, he he would have been one of the well he would have been the biggest player on the pitch. Briegel, Briegel's the other one. He's very tall. Oh, Briegel's tall, isn't he? Yeah. But but you're right though. Um, very few six foot players. It's it's quite funny seeing Etteri in in goal because he he does look like a schoolboy goalkeeper, doesn't he? The mascot has got in goal for the in the kicking, but um, he is that that good shot stopper. Rob, you were going to come in with something. Uh, I can't remember that. Oh, I was going to say no. I agree that. Uh, generally, and I know it's a bit of a generalisation, I think older football was less cynical. It was dirtier, obviously. Uh, but I, I just feel like, broadly speaking, I think people were more likely to stab you in the front back then now that happily stab yeah, you in the back. Yeah. Um, I remember, because we watch quite a few old games for various reasons, and you, that's one thing that does stand out. I mean, there are exceptions. You know, Someone like Norman Whiteside was a spectacular wind-up merchant for United in the 80s. But generally, there aren't... That many, although it interested me that um, at one point Bossis waves an imaginary card to the referee yeah. when he's fouled by Steele. Oh, yeah, that really surprised me because I thought that kind of thing had started a bit later. Um, but I but I do agree with you. I mean, Germany, I mean, Schumacher's villainy casts like such a great shadow over the game, and it makes you think that it's easy to think that Germany went around kicking France all game. It simply isn't true. Um, yeah, no, and apart from that, they were the France's equals, really. not quite as beautiful, but they still scored some really good goals. I mean, what do you what do you think of? I think it was Lacey's point. It may have been Michael Verney um, saying that the the referee was incompetent and useless. Now, obviously, he oh, got McElvaney, one yeah. one decision completely wrong. But I felt in the rest of the match, I felt he let the the play flow. He didn't uh, issue unnecessary yellow cards. He did give two, and they were marginal. But I, I didn't think the referee had a bad game. You know, apart from and there's a. There's a line, yeah. isn't there, to Mel Brooks film or something, you know, <laughs> apart yeah. from, you know. Yeah. Um, but I thought the referee did did well if you take out the, the horrendous uh, incident. Yeah, agreed. And there, I'd like to see the angle again and watch what the referee's head's doing, but there might be a mitigating circumstance for missing it um, because, like we yeah. said, everyone followed the ball. I don't know. But no, generally, I don't think there were any other real controversies were there. I, one thing, I don't think it affects this game, but often in older games, you see offside decisions that are just taken for granted that they're correct and they're yeah. anything but. I mean, there's, there's some famous ones at Italian 90. I think the offside decisions here were okay. You know, the one where Platini's put through that we spoke about. Um, so, yeah, I had no thought. Apart from, apart from they, they were fine, yeah. <laughs> I think with those ones, those, those kind of offside decisions... Because of the lack of technology then, people yeah. just moved on from it very quickly. They did, yeah. And also, no, go on, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, and it, it's just a, it invokes a very different reaction now. Yes. I mean, obviously, like, get the rulers out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the other thing is they look, they sometimes look deceptive to modern eyes because the rule obviously changed. Mm. In 82, it would have been level is offside. That's yeah, right, isn't yeah. it? So, like, so sometimes they look a bit jarring as well. I think there is a cultural change as well, and you've, you've mentioned uh, this. It's partly due to the technology, but the the phrase that you still hear sometimes in football is, you know, 
he's closest to the incident. They're in the best position to make the decision. Mm. Mm. You did kind of shrug your shoulders and get on with it. And mm. the cliche is that I know Rob, you and I have spoken about um, that we don't actually think are true. Like it evens itself out over a season. Well, it's, mm. it's different if you mm. get a bad offside when you're three 0 up uh, against Bournemouth, as opposed to getting a bad offside when it's one one with five minutes to go in a derby. Um, but um, there is a sense these days that that and you see it online most obviously uh, with the loudest voices that not only are we in a better position because of cameras but we're actually better judges or or there are fans who consider themselves better judges and I've, there are threads on reddit that get geometry out and rulers out to show that a forward was not in the eye line of a keeper when he was given offside yeah. on the VAR. And it, mm. it, 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 I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but you just think that's not really what, that's not really what games are about, never mind football. Um, yeah, and it was, it was a quieter time. And what that allowed us to do is, is not, sort of dwell on these things and and think what what could have been in the 56th minute if Platini was not flagged offside but to enjoy the 57th and the 58th minute um, yeah yeah I think the two two other things that have changed over the last kind of 40 years is what one this kind of zero zero tolerance now for any kind of mistakes yes you know and also this this about four years ago, you did. There was more respect for the integrity of the referee. Like even if you made a mistake, you know, you you wouldn't imply any kind of conspiracy over it. Whereas now you have, you know, the Anfield rat looking at where all the referees are born. You know, yeah, working conspiracy <laughs> theories off the. Although the parad- paradoxically, there were probably more bent referees back then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, but I think, but I agree. with uh, with Charles Corver, I mean, but for the Batterston incident, you'd probably never know his name. Because he, no. he and he, if you just, yeah, it's very difficult to take that incident out of this game, obviously. <laughs> but if you did, I mean, it's a very free-flowing, open game of football. He plays on, you know, in a lot of instances, mm. one of which I think leads to uh, Rummenigge's goal. He could have blown for a, a foul in there for West Germany that would have stopped their move. But, you know, he, he didn't pull that back. You know, he did everything he could to kind of let the game run, I, I think. To- Quite a hefty tackle on a French player in the lead up to that goal as well. Yes, there I is, don't yeah. think it's a foul, but I think I don't think it's a foul by the standards of 1982 anyway. But it did kind of make me stop for a second. I think it might yeah. be on duress, but anyway. But no, I agree. I completely agree with you. Um, it's a it's a well run game, and you're right. It's interesting. I always say in my mind when I watch back the 1990 semi final West Germany v England, and Chris Waddle has a clear penalty not given at one nil. I think it's Alcantara who fouls him, I forget. But barely an appeal, nothing on TV, barely a replay, no screaming of it about injustice. And this is like 20 minutes before England equalised. There's plenty of time mm. to go, you know, we've been, we was robbed. Barely, barely any mention of it at all. I don't think they show it on the replays when they go back to the studio. Um, just a different culture, I guess. I wonder where it changed. Did, did the hand of God start to make us more conscious of injustice? I don't know. Even so, that that's four years before Waddle. So, well, is it, or is, is it, it just that human behaviour evolves and there's no one moment? Uh, it, it's hard sometimes to to tell you one thing. The internet hasn't helped. Yeah, well, I think I think that's that's it. But it's hard to discern, isn't isn't it? Looking looking back in time, because you know, two incidents of different character 
um, were big talking points, both involving Leeds United. There's um, Barry Davis's famous meltdown, yeah. and he has every right to be, and and so on. Yeah. As um, what was what was never an offside goal against West Brom uh, at all, because there was no pass play. The the player carried the ball, didn't he? Um, there and the other one, which uh, Leeds fans do have. I know carrying in uh, a sense of grievance about was the oh, European was Cup final in Paris, yeah, yeah. Uh, where I think, and I, uh, I must be careful, I, I feel the, the dead hand of uh, of defamation laws on my shoulder here, but I think That's there was significant right. investigations. Dead now, don't worry. Yeah. Uh, after the and uh, the the two 0 defeat, yeah, there was the famous Forest Anderlecht one that definitely was shown to be Ben, wasn't it? Um, yeah, the eighty four semi final UEFA Cup, but yeah. So maybe it was because we were looking for these big conspiracies that that the kind of marginal calls or or the you've seen them given uh, type incidents just disappear. Yeah. I've, of course, it wasn't the endless analysis either. Yeah, that's um, a huge hmm. thing, isn't it? Even like games like this, they wouldn't be. Well, never mind. There was no internet, but even the post-match analysis would be limited. <clears throat> um, you're right. It's just a different culture, I guess. Yeah, and it, you know, there's no phone-ins to radio stations. Certainly about football, there was no talk sport looking at the talking points and getting renter gobs on and all of that. Um, yeah, I'd love, to, interest- I'd love to do that sometime. Find the first moron who had. <laughs> their opinion published or put on the radio or whatever. I remember that the tabloids used to have, you know, phone in or or you used to be able to send your opinion. I remember around the time Beckham was sent off in 98, there were a lot there, but it'd be good to find who was the first football sport and more on who was published. (laughs) I think, I think the place where you might find that is the early days of football 365, which very, you go back the phone ins were even earlier, weren't they? Two ish. Danny Baker started 606. Although I think 606 was pretty good at first. Yeah, Again, it yeah. Just, there's no one moment. It just evolves, doesn't it? And I, one thing that consistently annoys me, and I've got to stop doing this, is looking at the BBC live text, see the latest scores, because they'll just publish anything, like the most oh, extreme nonsense. Yeah. Like, Why are you doing it? It's hmm. not prompting discussion. It's just an idiot. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it might, uh, going back to my brother's place in the, in the cars after matches, uh, he just has a he just has a thing where they, we put Radio Merseyside on after the Everton game, and and a, a phone in comes in and he says cop out, cop out, and you have um, you have fans of other teams phoning in, purporting to be fans of the team in order yeah, to yeah, slag yeah. them off, and mm. it all it all gets gets so meta and tedious. But uh, we're not here at Nassim Dorma. <laughs> So now I've got about the tedium of present day football. I, I can't stop thinking about that clip in um, socially distant sports bar which calls in calls Gary Newpon a cunt. It's so funny the way Newpon reacts. Shut up. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Uh, excellent. I know, it's so, incredibly uh, childish, we, but it's so funny. We we were going to look at some what we've called kind of hipster moments because we're still looking for. Uh, a correct title for this. There is there is an alternative title we've come up with, but it might get us uh, it might get us some strange sort of algorithms coming our way, uh, even if I say the word. So I'm going to avoid it. But um, I've got a hipster moment. But have, have you guys got one? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I suspect we'll, we might all have the same one. But um, at one one after about forty minutes, there's an incredible length of the field move from France 
They start by playing the ball out in a really tight area. I think they get a bollocking from Barry Davis on commentary for taking too many risks. <laughs> and they sweep the length of the field and eventually Platini whips his shot just wide with the outside of the foot from about 20 yards. It's absolutely beautiful. It's like a, if you wanted to pick one moment that sums them up, it's probably that rather than any of the goals or anything else. It's absolutely glorious. Gires. Well, they'll play around with it there too. And now beautifully out. Rosco. Is he prepared to run, Bern Forster? Picks up for Gini! Well, that said everything about the French. Gambling with their life at one end. Built a lovely attack which was finished with a cracking drive from Bertini. Yeah, that Davis commentary, they were playing one-twos on the edge of their box. He he just almost <laughs> under his breath goes, oh, they'll play around with it there. Just, <laughs> within I'm seconds, they're at the other end. How, yeah. He's like a disappointed dad. Uh, and then, you know, within 10 seconds, they're having a shot at the other end. It's, uh, what it's an absolute football. joy it is. I mean, his commentary is only from the highlights, but what a joy it is to listen to. He's so good. Absolutely mm. marvellous. Even just the intonation of um, Fisher when he equalised. Fisher, it's just, yeah, he's just so good. I, I could, I'd love to, I wish every game in history was commentated on by him. <laughs> I think uh, many will agree with you, Rob. And a thoroughly nice man. I, I met him once on my birthday, interviewed him, and, it, and had a couple of pints with him. It was just an absolute pleasure. Such a nice man. I, I saw him in the press box at, at Wimbledon uh, when he was still doing uh, some commentating there. He, he was obviously of an advanced age. Mm. He had a remarkably deep tan because I think by that <laughs> stage he'd, he'd moved to Spain or something. Um, but I'm afraid to say uh, he was one of the, the, the few. Michael Holding is another that I, I just couldn't summon the courage to speak to the great man because they are so much, uh, that both of them are so much a part of, of my kind oh, of should... upbringing in history that I, I, it took me a long time to speak to Michael Holding. I have since and uh, I've very much enjoyed his company but um, I couldn't do it Barry Davis. I just couldn't, I couldn't I get was, the words. I was so nervous I knocked a pint flying. <laughs> terrible. I'd only had one at this point. We only had two. Uh, yeah. It was like in the afternoon but um, yeah, that was quite embarrassing. But, yeah, well maybe we can Take a, a more from the Barry Davies uh, years uh, with Rob Smythe later in the, uh, <laughs> in this series of podcasts. Um, Mike, what, have you got a hipster moment then? Uh, well, it wouldn't be a moment as such. It's more just the way the French set up, really. And I know we touched on this a bit uh, a bit earlier on, but that team. I mean, it's just you know with two sort of nominal wide forwards. As, as the actual forwards, that midfield, the two fullbacks, Trezor bringing it out from the back. I mean, they were just such a... Um, like, it feels like a very futuristic team, you know, it the way... It really does. The way they play there. They, you know, they look like a template for, you know, what would come um, a couple of decades later. It's a lovely line by, um, like, Paddy Barkley did a lot of writing on that World Cup for the yes. Guardian. And he, he, he refers to the French style of players like a kaleidoscopic whirl of passes, which I thought was like a really <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, phrase. But um, yeah, just how well, sort of borderline communist it was really. There's no, like, even with Platini, you know, he's not dominating the play. Uh, you know, not everything is going through. No. It no. seems to be, you know, they just seem to love sharing the ball around. 
with each other. It must have been an absolute just joy to play in that team. But then it's it's counterbalanced with like it it did you know even though they scored three goals in this like a real definitive cutting edge up front. You know what that might have done for that that mm. team. You don't know. But then what? But then what would you lose by having that? I suppose you know. Would you would you then lose all this kind of you know very aesthetically beautiful build up play? Um, I don't know. But yeah, as a as a kind of a forerunner to a you know a lot of teams we would see decades later. That's sort of one thing that really struck me about France. Yeah, well, me I, too. I, I assumed it was like a four two two two, like a magic square. But actually, it's a lot more. They they obviously evolve into that, but it's really interesting. It's basically split strikers, isn't it? What we would call mm. now Seaton Washington. But Platini's role I found fascinating because it's pretty much a false nine, really. If I, I'm mm. trying to think, because in the show notes we, we're going to put or we have put the formations, and I still can't decide whether it's like you put it as four three three with Platini as a nine, or four three one two with um, Platini behind Washington Seas. It's really interesting. Well, well, it's interesting to me anyway. Yeah, well, I, I found I'm no tactical analyst at, at all. Uh, I, I don't really get that side of the, of the game. Um, by get, I understand its importance. I just seldom see it uh, until it's pointed mm. out to me. But what I did see, because um, I was already looking to see whether Platini was more of the, the number 10 playmaker or, or a false nine, and I know there's nuance between those those definitions. And he, he mm. did come deeper for the ball, and I expected him to. Um, he yeah, did, a, yeah, he just goes everywhere, basically. Yeah, he was... When Harry Kane was getting some criticism um, for Tottenham for not being enough in the in the forwards, Platini is deeper than Harry Kane would be at his deepest, I think, mm. when he was... He was um, he was getting that criticism for not uh, playing in the forwards for Tottenham a year or two ago. Um, but what one of the things that struck me, and I think maybe this is Cecil and, and Rosto, uh more than Platini, is it seemed, and somebody will watch the game back and count the number of times and prove <laughs> me wrong, but it, it seemed that often Platini not only was late into the box, but he seemed like he was the only forward in the box. And he kind of... You see a foreshadowing of the the nine goals he scored in what was it five games or something in yeah. Yeah. six games or whatever in right. Euro eighty four because and I think on the commentary of the, the the version we saw I think there's a mention of who's going to score the goals if Platini doesn't and you know, one answer is Gires but I think that was from outside the box as well wasn't it Gires I'm sure Gires yeah. just on the edge or close yeah. to the edge certainly. But they they don't they don't really rush to and cease for being wide forwards. They don't really get in the box very very much, and you do get the idea that everything has to end with a with a, a shot or a header from Platini because there's nobody else there, unless of course it's a set play and then Trezor mm. you know stuck mm. his away. And that feels both modern and wasteful, if that's the right word. But you know mm. the point about what do you lose if you if you have a, a um, Serginio figure up, up top is is a good one. Mm. Yeah, Pratini's energy to keep getting in the box as well. For a man who smoked 20 jetans a day, <laughs> it's kind of a, very impressed. But he, he's such a glorious sight, isn't he? When he streaks, oh, really? streaks forward into the uh, 
in a box like oh, that's just majestic. Well, he, he he wasn't the most elegant of runners, but sometimes if you have that slightly hunched run, um, it can be so compelling, almost kind of hypnotic. Mm. How he how he can run both with the ball and off the ball, and you, you never have to look very far um, in a in a, a set of players who are not short of hair. We've already mentioned yeah. that uh, Platini's head is always uh, very visible um due to the way of his running and i mean that was that was my moment i was going to raise with with you because when france get the, the penalty to equalize isn't it to, to mm. one and, one yeah yeah um it's almost the opposite of the penalties that you see today, albeit that you don't see quite so many uh, in, the, in this 2022-23 uh, season. It's almost the opposite of that um, dancing about like Sugar Plum Fairy on the spot before you, you kick the ball, because he, he walks back to the edge of the to the edge of the uh, D in the penalty uh, area. So he's running a full ten yards and he's picking up pace the whole way, and then he he kicks the ball uh and it's a good penalty but he's he's pretty much at full tilt when he's uh he's taking that penalty i'm, I'm always surprised me they do that well i think part david louise used to do it yeah i think part of it and i was looking at it is that maybe the the goalkeeper gets a, a tell on which way he's he's going to hit it because to move your to, to go for the other corner, your body yeah. shape would have to switch, so you'd have to do mm. it sooner. But it's, I mean, the confidence that it shows to run full tilt at the ball and say, I'm mm. going to make exactly the connection I want and I'm going to put it exactly where I want, it, it kind of makes you think it's worth doing it just for that um, winning the, the, I hate to use the phrase, the mind games with the keeper. Who was, who, who was that guy who used to run from miles back? from like Not quite the halfway. Was it Blanco, the Mexican? He used to have this ridiculous oh, no. run-up. Um, but I've always quite liked that. But I suppose you're right about the possible oh, tell. But you get so much momentum. I remember David Luiz doing it, I think, when Chelsea won the Champions League and absolutely slammed it into the top corner after running about 15 yards. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah I may have mentioned that, that I, I like a particular kind of free kick. I may have mentioned it in the Maradona episode, which you'll be able to find at Ness and Dormer. It's a great <laughs> listen, even though I say so myself, uh, ourselves. Um, I, I, I always like the idea of having no run-up for a free kick where there's a wall because the keeper doesn't see yes. when the ball is coming. Mm, the first time the keeper yeah. sights the ball is when it's, it's already travelling at some pace over the wall. But I also like the idea of running full tilt at a penalty and saying, you know, have it! Uh, she belted past the keeper, Mike. Yeah, I was just going to say with Platini. I mean, he's he's the person you'd want in that situation as well. I mean, he's got that. Um, it's what they call in American sports the clutch gene. He's mm. just so good in big moments and big games right through his career. I mean, there's a kind of sense with him that his, his World Cup career, just the World Cup, was actually a bit underwhelming uh, compared to the rest of his career. I think he scored five goals in. 15 games, something like that. But of those five goals, one was against Argentina, the hosts in um, yeah. uh, 78, the, the one here in the semi-final. And then in 86, he scored against Italy. And then in that you know Brazil game on his birthday. Oh, he just goal got, against Italy is beautiful, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. But he's just got this knack of um, uh, delivering in those and just being decisive in those big moments, which made him such a great player. And he was one of the early kind of pioneers of 
really sort of practicing and dedicating yourself to dead ball skills, you know, mm. a master in free kicks. Um, you know, he used to practice with, uh, he had, he had a, uh, some kind of construction made of like a wall with like four wooden players that he would just move in front of the goal and sort of take free kicks around it and things like that. So it's, yeah, very ahead of his time in that. It's very rare and even more so then to get a playmaker who scored that many goals, isn't it? It's like a, yeah. like a fusion of Zidane and Lampard or something. His numbers are incredible. Um, yeah. yeah. The, 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 there, are, there are compilations of him playing for Juventus. And if ever a man was born to wear the Juventus kit, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. Michel Platini. It's just a thing of absolute beauty. You know, I'd, uh, I'd pay to see him, uh, as they say, pay to see him warm up. There's a few that are like that um, because they are in and of themselves with their, their balance they and their uh, just carriage, if for want of a better word. The, the, the ball the match situation. It just doesn't yeah. matter. You just want to watch them. You just want to look at them. One um, thing that um, sticks with me about him, actually, is that, um, I mean, he's he always had this kind of hangdog expression on the pitch, but um, it's a line in Maradona's autobiography when he, at the end of the book, he sort of rates the 100 best players he's seen. And his line about Quatini is, oh, he's a great player, but he never looked like he was enjoying himself, which I thought was like a really interesting observation from, you know, mm. a, a fellow great player he was like he was perpetually frustrated with people around him Platini you know always like you know throwing his hands up uh didn't see him smile that much on the pitch I don't know it's it's, it's strange really for you know Mm. for such a gifted player Uh, and and, and such a joyful player as well oh yeah yeah that's an interesting point yeah maybe he was thinking this is going to be very very different when I'm in charge (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's not talk about the fall no, from grace that's too let's not let's not talk about let's not talk about that um we have we got any any other um hipster moments before we go to the forgotten moments or things that surprised us which no, i admit there no, is some crossover nothing from me well uh, uh, anything from you mate uh no no I'll, I'll segue into a forgotten moment if you like go on okay um yeah, well, something that struck me about um, the the penalties in this, the penalty competition at the end of the match, was um, just what a novelty it would have been mm. for the for the people involved and also everybody watching as well. I mean, well, we you know we're well used to seeing uh, penalty competitions decide games now, but then I mean, this we said before, this is the first ever one in the World Cup. Um, not many people would have seen the 1976 European Championship final uh, shootout, the one between uh, Czechoslovakia and West Germany that was settled with the Penenka. To this point, no European Cup final or Cup Winners Cup final or UEFA Cup final had been decided on penalties. So it was like, it was a, and this, this is on a global stage, you know, the World Cup semi-final, hundreds of millions of people seeing this. So it, it would have been a real kind of novel way of... Um, deciding a game I think that people would be seeing for the first time and if it's a novelty for people watching it almost feels like a novelty for the players because it, it looks really compared to the way we see penalty shootouts now it almost looks like no one really knows what to do mm. especially uh, so, Ettore especially Ettore who doesn't even I don't even think he makes one kind of full length dive no. for any of the penalties you just keep stepping to one side or the other um, Breitner skips up to his penalty like a like a show jumping pony <laughs> and, and nearly sticks it um 
sticks it over the bar, the TV director, uh, whoever it is, <laughs> yes. almost misses completely, seeks his penalty because he's zoning in on Steelica's uh, disappointment after... They, they do after miss it. His game. They, yeah, they miss they? it completely. They, they just cut yeah, back. Just, yeah, because yeah. if you watch, I was watching some um, uh, Match of the World Cup, which was on BBC in 2002, and their highlights, they, they cut to Cease's penalty from a behind-the-goal angle because there is yeah. no footage of the actual penalty being taken because they're concentrating on Stielica, yeah, uh, who just missed. Yeah, and then you see the replay. You hear Barry Davis go, oh, and he's missed or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah and Corver, um, the referee, is basically standing on the edge of the six-yard box. He's like right in – he must be in the eye line of the, you know, the penalty taker and the goalkeeper, which seems to me just like that would be really distracting. It's like, it's like he's too close to it. I mean, the only, the only thing about it that feels – like a modern day penalty shootout is that France and West they put Poutini and Rumeniger in the fifth penalty. Mm. But I think thinking that that will be the decisive one, you know, I'll put my best and most mm. decisive player fifth um, so they can win it for us. But then obviously, you know, it goes to um, sudden death. And uh, yeah, poor Maxime Bossis, I think, yeah, as we mentioned earlier, the first yeah. person to have to kind of shoulder this. Um, you know, kind of global intrusion on your uh, grief when you miss a, a massive penalty for your country. But um, yeah, that's really struck me about the penalties. It, it just, it felt curiously kind of unformed and, you know, that, that people hadn't worked out, you know, how a penalty shootout was supposed to go yet. And Horst Lubesch now has the chance of putting West Germany into the final against Italy on Sunday. Rubesh against Ettore, and West Germany have won. How cruel! I got that feeling, to, not to the same extent, but when I watched England West Germany again in 1990, almost like people hadn't twigged the consequences that yeah. you know, if you lose this, you're gone. Um, but yeah, it's really fascinating to watch because now it's such a familiar thing. Um, you're right. I think if you asked ten, say a hundred people who are watching that game. If they knew who Penenka was, I reckon ten at most would. The seventy-six final wouldn't really have registered massively. Um, so yeah, completely new. One of the things that that maybe I noticed, or maybe I didn't notice, I didn't write it down, was were they doing that thing where they line up on the halfway line like a set of Blackpool Tiller girls about to do sort of high kicks, <laughs> arms behind each other, and so on? Because I don't, I think, I think that was much have- later. Yeah, I think they were just kind of gathered. I remember, I think, it's, is it Lipbarski who's consoling Stielica mm. as Cease misses his penalty? I remember that. But um, but no, I don't think it was like a, yeah. Because isn't there, you know, Laurent Blanc? Photo like it is now. Laurent Blanc, where he is not in the line and he's sort of got his head down when there's a penalty scored and probably 98, but I'm, I'm not sure. So I'm just, I'm just wondering when that, kind of now sort of behavioural norm really to stand on the halfway line like the Tiller girls um, because I don't think it was it was in this shootout but I, I, I may be I wrong No well, I think you're right but I think it was a long time after that. Even in 96 England didn't do it did they? Because Gascoigne was just chatting with Sammer during the yeah, yeah. Germany game yeah, it's funny how these these things they, they they sort of seep into our psyches, and it's only when mm. they're they're missing that we uh, that we notice them. Um, notice them. That 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 excellent line in uh, in following the Christopher Nolan film, where there's an explanation of why that's the case. Um, some of, one of the things that that 
I noticed, um, and again, we've, we've just got used to it over a relatively short period of time, but there are no technical areas. Um, so the, the kind of coaching staff, the, the manager and the physio, they're, they're in these tiny dugouts and all you can see really are, are heads above the parapet. So they, <laughs> yeah. they actually look a bit like kind of Muppets that are there sort of appearing as sort of half bodies. And when they get animated or anxious, they have to sort of clamber out of the, <laughs> yeah, the, the dugout. Yeah. It takes a bit of time and they look rather inelegant. Uh, and of course, there aren't the, the cameras trained on them the way they, they are now to get those important uh, reaction moments and the, 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 the Mourinho type uh, histrionics, but what could they see from these dugouts? That's what I mean. How can you make tactical judgments when you're, you're looking up from kind of ankle height? Well, apparently yeah. um, Hidalgo saw the foul on Batistón because he's absolutely furious about it mm. afterwards. And you're thinking, well, if he's seen that from like, <laughs> the mole's eye position, fifty <laughs> yards away, <Yeah. laughs> how, how's how's the referee missed it? <laughs> Uh, one, one of the things it, it showed me is that uh, a lot of the time, especially looking back with the nostalgic uh, glasses that we use at uh, Ness and Dormer, it's it's easy to think or easy to give the impression that kind of everything was better in those days, particularly the more melodramatic stuff. But I actually quite like the, uh, the fact that there are technical areas and that, that managers can not get involved in the game, but that we see we see that they care as much as we care or we see their reactions. Um, and I, I think technical areas are an advance uh, in the game and I think it adds something uh, yeah, to, to the game. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. But it's, uh, and we, we notice it because there they are in those, those little dugouts. Um, was this a match where there were no anthems played at the start? Oh, I didn't uh, notice that, but now you mention it, quite possibly. Oh, no, I, they were, they were. Were they? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it wouldn't have been on the kind of version of the game we've seen, but, um, yeah, they definitely were. Okay. Uh, right. I just wondered if it was just for finals and things. It would be, again, there's probably somewhere on the internet where someone's done, done a, a deep dive into when national anthems were were played, uh, first played at matches. Well, actually, um, it, was the, it was the 82 World Cup where... Uh, Scotland started uh, playing their own national anthem rather than God Save That, much to uh, Thatcher's chagrin, apparently. <laughs> um, they play, Well, they started off with Scotland the Brave, I think it's called, and then switched to, um, uh, what's it now, Flower of Scotland. Mm. But uh, that was the cut-off point of that World, uh, that World Cup. Yeah, I mean, one of my favourite bits, it's an underrated film, actually, is the... Um, oh, Mike, who is it? The football manager, the pa- Mike parody. Bassett. Mike, Mike Bassett. Bassett. Yeah, and they, it's it's obviously CGI because it's the early days of CG, CGI when they're lined up for the national anthem and they're belting out "God Save the Queen" and they get about thirty seconds into the opposition anthem and the England players all peel off you know, and start start running up, running around, and warming up. It's very very funny amongst many. Very funny scenes in, in uh, the Mike Bassett thing. Um, have you got any any more? I've got one or two. No, go on. Off you go. Let's well, have it. There's a <laughs> let's have it. There's a brass band in the crowd. Um, <laughs> very very clearly, not not just a, a lone trumpeter, but you know, a, a full brass band belting out the uh, the the songs. Uh, and of course, they 
maybe it's French because the French do love a brass band. There's no doubt about that. If you've ever been in Paris on New Year, as I have, every other street has a brass band belting stuff out, like the Salvation Army at Christmas. Um, <laughs> but you, you hear it coming over quite loud and clear. Unfortunately, uh, someone in England was taking notes and uh, oh, start, <laughs> yeah. starting to learn self-preservation society for uh, every, <laughs> every good go. We, we, we had a, a band at Goodison, I think, in the, in the early 2000s. Maybe it was the late 90s, and it, it, it didn't last long. They had, the, they had their own area set aside in the Gladys Street, and I think, uh, yeah. I think um, yes, they got some old-fashioned looks uh, so that didn't that, that didn't last. That was a thing, wasn't it? Like this, the weird cult of the the Roan celebrity fan at the World yeah. Cup. I remember there was that Manolo. Manolo guy who did the drum, and that you remember the Birdman, the Colombian guy, who would be no. hang, <laughs> hang from the stands basically <laughs> with a, well, a pair of like, a uh, bit, wings, like cheeky at uh, Trinidad, is it? Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, oh, or yeah, Antigua, yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of. That kind of thing. Um, another uh, forgotten moment that, that I had uh, um, is when Trezor scores his goal, um, he kind of runs away to the camera. And I had really strong uh, memories of, of the inimitable, uh, which I'm about to prove, uh, David Coleman with his Porterfield from the 1973 <laughs> FA Cup, because the camera's in the same kind of place, and he runs away with his arms outstretched with a similar look of disbelief as the uh, the Sunderland man who scored the winning goal at uh, at Wembley in, in 73. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have had uh, Trezor and Porterfield necessarily on my uh, bingo <laughs> card list, but they the, but there's a definite resemblance between, between the two. And, yeah, I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners uh, will themselves uh, look back in, in kind of football nostalgia um, and we're so lucky that we've got so much available uh, online that we can we can watch which facilitates programs like ours but they're full of these kind of tiny delights these these kind of little firecrackers that go off in, in your memory it's uh, it really is a, a kind of comforting and, and joyful experience to get these these memories uh, flaring up. Um, I mean, you guys both watch old football matches back for professional and personal interest, don't you? I mean, is that is that the kind of thing that comes through? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I haven't really thought about it, but yeah, no, <laughs> I, I do know what you mean. It's quite frightening how much stuff is stored in our memory and how it can be prodded and, yeah. Yeah, well, I've got to the stage where... I know it's stored, but often it's wrong because I, have, <laughs> I then look up the match and find out it wasn't 82, it was 79. <laughs> and it wasn't <laughs> Leicester City, it was Nottingham Forest and back and forth it goes. Um, any more forgotten moments? Probably, no, a couple of things surprised me was one, how many players had socks around their ankles and didn't seem to be wearing shin pads or maybe they just had small shin pads. The main thing for me that, really stood out was we kind of think of the game exploding in extra time as it does with four goals the last 15 minutes of normal time are incredible it's like a stream of chances culminating in two in injury time Amaros hits the bar with that brilliant shot and then even after that Ettery makes a desperate double save from I think it's Brightner and then Fisher um so yeah that that part alone is kind of a classic period never mind extra time um yeah I, I had no memory of that at all really or no yeah learned memory what what did what do you think of 
because we, we hear a lot that it's a hot night in Seville, and obviously Seville in high summer is going to be hot. Yeah. But apart from Tigana very obviously running out of steam in the last 10 minutes, the game doesn't really seem to have that air of extra time and blazing heat. Um, there aren't players going down with cramp every 10 minutes. There isn't much in the way of time wasting. We barely see a physio coming on, with the obvious exception that we keep mentioning. Um, I mean, Mike, is that just just something that, that I'm reading back into a, into history when it was it was easier. There were no boards held up with sort of five added minutes on. We, we, we kind of got on with things. I think so. Yeah. And also this game, it did kick off at nine o'clock Spanish time. So it was quite right. I mean, that would not stop it being in incredibly hot in Seville. I've been in Seville in August. Uh, and you know, me being a a sort of pasty Northern bloke. (laughs) Between 12 and 5, I couldn't even leave the hotel. It was searingly <laughs> hot. I mean, the, the thought of, like, you know, trying to chase down Hans-Peter Brieg <laughs> in that kind of heat is um, is terrifying, really. But, uh, yeah, it's just it's one of those great World Cup evenings, isn't it, where um, especially, I think I've made this point on other pods before, but especially in, in World Cups played in, like, Southern Europe or around the Med, they just seem to absorb yeah. all of the, uh, yeah. you know, you know, the heat and the uh, the kind of atmosphere, and it becomes part of the match in a kind of aesthetic yeah. sense, I think. And it just runs deep and deep into the night, um, and it just it just sort of glosses it with this kind of extra layer of magic. I think. I think that really heightens the senses about those kind of games. I think that was a big part of England's World Cup run at Italia '90. Actually, all the games mm-hmm. were night games. In the knockout rounds, they're all settled very late, you know, either in extra time or yeah. on penalties. And I think in yeah, in the kind of operatic sense of you know how we remember it as a very dramatic um, experience, I think that definitely adds to it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The, the, again, there's probably somewhere on the the internet you might even have done a joy of six about it, Rob. I, I don't know, but there is there is something to be written or something that I need to read about the kind of visual aesthetics of of different, not just different sports, but different tournaments or, yeah. or different different kind of, uh, I'm not really sure of the word I'm looking for. It's almost, you know, the evening games in genre, I suppose, is closest. The evening games in World Cups, night games in World Cups, um, East European matches in European games in the in the seventies with the crackling kind of uh, commentary coming through and talk of the big red machines mm-hmm. uh, in a completely different way. There's there's the the, the c- coverage of cricket from Australia when that mm-hmm. burning bright sun comes yeah, comes yeah. through and we're in the middle of of winter. And you're absolutely right, Mike. Is that particularly evening games in the World Cup, although there's been some classics in daytime, you know, Brazil against mm. Italy was a daytime game, wasn't it? Um, but there, there is a particular aesthetic, and perhaps one of the, the high points of that is this is this match uh, under lights in Seville, in the heat with, with these players playing with this joy and this uh, openness, really. Um, it's such a privilege to, to watch it, isn't it? It really is. Mm. Yeah, I would add into that the um, these sort of shimmering midday kickoffs you get in Mexico, yeah, yeah. in uh, sort of nineteen seventy and nineteen eighty six, where 
it just feels like every every player's losing losing a stone in waste yeah. running, running around out there. And it's, um, and it's just so powerful with that sunshine as well. It's just, yeah. um, the, the Mexico games. I mean, I I am trying to think. I mean, apart from perhaps one or two FA Cup finals, I can recall. And there's always that sort of slow, low slanting sun that we get at Goodison. But we don't really think of shadows of, as being in any way um, part of the televised football experience in the UK. And yet in Mexico, that kind of first thing I think yeah. of are, mm. are the shadows of the stands and the, the cut of the grass and the shadows of the players and everything. It just goes to show just how, how different things can be um, within what is an increasingly homogenised, but one hopes not entirely homogenised uh, football culture that we have today. Hmm. Uh, anything, any last thoughts? Um, oh, the one thing I wanted to mention is just how gorgeous the French kit is. Um, <laughs> yes. It's just blue with white, red pinstripes, kind of classic Adidas look. Yeah, it's absolutely delightful. Germany's kit's nice, but it's kind of fairly plain and classic. French one is just, I, I love, some of those 80s pinstripe kits are just fantastic. I think Italy, my, uh, Italy, I think Ipswich have one as well that I really like. Uh, Aberdeen as well, but this is really lovely. Yeah, it's that it's that sense of not trying too hard and getting yeah. something that's just perfect. I, I completely agree. Uh, anything else, Mike? Anything uh, you've spotted? Yeah, just one thing on the West German team. I mean, we touched on it a bit before, but it's just this collective memory that, um, you know, that they're defined by what happened with Algeria and what happened with Austria and what happened with Batistone in this World Cup. But, they, you know, they're a much better team mm. um, than that. And you can see that in this game, I think. They're not the robotic, the Catholics of, you know, <laughs> legend who just wore people down. I thought they... In extra to, to salvage that situation in extra time, um, the way they did, the confidence to keep playing, you know, the matter of fact way they came back into the game. I just thought, I mean, they were such an impressive side. You can see why they were, you know, the European champions. Um, and it's one of the great, even in their kind of uh, illustrious history of uh, escapology, it's got to be up there with, you know, what one of the greatest acts of that they've ever done I think and you do wonder what this game would have took out of them I mean they were so flat in the final I mean mm. they just kind of rolled yeah. them over uh, really easy I think so to, to have to play three days after this well less than three days actually it's less than 72 hours later a World Cup final um, not just the exertion of going to extra time but you know the emotional letting as well of having to retrieve and win a game like this yeah it's so great, I think. I mean, I think it's just you need you need more than three days to get over that, and then go and take on an Italian team that are banging form. Yeah, it's a it's a very good point, Mike. You had another? Uh, no, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we, we've been going about three hours, three towards three and a half hours, all told. And I think we, I we've, we've, given, days, then. <laughs> <laughs> we've given it a good run round the, the, the paddock. Um, so uh, one of the great, I think we're all agreed, one of the, the great World Cup uh, matches uh, for all the reasons that we've ex- expanded upon um, before. Uh, so it remains only for me to thank uh, Rob Smyre. Thank you very much, Rob. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Mike. Mike Gibbons. 
Cheers, guys. Thanks very much. I've been Gary Naylor, and if you've enjoyed this episode of Ness and Dorma, um, you'll find some more. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.